Hello and welcome back to Riot Act, the alternative music podcast with me, Stephen Hill, and him, Renfrey Deadman. Renfrey Deadman. That sounded Deadman. that sounded like Renfrey Deadman, but I'll take it. Uh, uh, you think you think I say things wrong all the time, which is ironic. <laughs> I mean, some you. somewhat, yeah, it's somewhat ironic. Uh, I just pick you up on them. You just don't bother to pick up on pick me up on them. <laughs> I, I, I let Twitter do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, so thing. welcome, welcome back, listener, to the second part of our two-part birthday celebration podcast on U two. Um, hopefully, you have just listened to the first part, which is on the album The Joshua Tree. And uh, in this part, we were going to be following it up by talking about the band's seventh album. Um, Acting Baby released on the 18th of November 1991. I just want to say we usually do these and put them on our Patreon page, which is patreon.com forward slash right act podcast over there for five measly pathetic pounds a month that you'll never notice going out. You can get two of these podcasts a month plus four Rioters reviews where you get to pick an album that Renfrey and I talk about, which I think is stunning value. <laughs> It's very good value, yeah. We've been pretty good value. We've had people who are far more business orientated than us recommend to us that we put the price up quite a lot, and we've resisted. So there you go. That sounded a bit blowing our own trumpet, didn't it? But it is true. Yeah, it is true. Our many business meetings that we have (laughs) as 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 businessmen. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on a very very small scale, yes. But yes, exactly. Mm, yeah so um we're going to continue uh, on our chat uh, about you two hope you enjoyed the first half hopefully it's given you some food for thought if you were someone coming in with a slightly cynical eye to you two i know there will be a few of you um the band's producer as a kind of kicking off point for this um the band's longtime producer daniel lanois said when you've reached the top of the mountain you need to find another mountain to climb from the top, you can see that other mountain that you'd never noticed before, and you have to pack up all your gear and head back down to the bottom again. Um, Bono also said, you have to reject one expression of the band first before you get to the next expression, and in between, you have nothing. You have to risk it all. And that, I guess, is the kind of kickoff point of um, of Actung Baby, really, isn't it, Rimfrey? It's quite a tortured analogy, particularly, particularly from Lenoir uh, there, but yes. Um, that is perfectly fair enough. Mm. I think so. Um, so we've already talked about you 2 at this point being pretty much the biggest band in the world, if not the biggest, certainly in the top couple of bands uh, in the world who were... Surely in the top couple, yeah. Um, mm. I mean, I'm thinking Guns N' Roses. Yeah. By kind of 89, 90, you've got Guns N' Roses. Obviously, the Rolling Stones are always massive. Is are there we, really anyone else? Are we putting the likes of Michael Jackson, Madonna in there, or are we not? Well, I did say bands, but I'm happy to put Michael Jackson okay. and Madonna in there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it's a small pool, for sure. Mm. Prince would be Prince, one and another yeah. one yeah. as well. And, and soon to be Simply um, Red as well. <laughs> Unfortunately, <laughs> I'm not joking. Uh, but yeah, yeah with, uh, with, was it Stars? I kicked. Stars came out in 1991, the same yeah. year as this came out. We'll also yeah. talk about that a little bit at the moment. In, in, um, a, in a future classic album special, obviously. We'll be talking <laughs> yeah, about can you imagine? <laughs> Fucking hell, they're pissed off enough about having to listen to six hours about you too, let alone us talking about Simply Red for three hours. Fucking hell. That's not going to um, happen, to be clear. No, it's definitely not going to happen. 
Um, Adam Clayton said uh, regarding the sort of period that, I guess the rattle and hum period, uh, he said, we were guys in our mid-twenties having success that you couldn't have believed, but we became the po-faced stereotypes that people had us pegged as. We were learning how to be a, sta a stadium band and it was hell. Every night we'd come off the stage and we would debrief ourselves and have this feeling of doom and gloom that we just weren't good enough. That, coming from a band who we've just gone, well, there's Madonna, there's Michael Jackson, there's Prince, there's Guns N' Roses, there's the Rolling Stones, and that's about it mm -hmm. that is comparable. Mm -hmm. Particularly for a band who are painted as these egomaniacal, uber-confident, super sort of up-their-own-ass guys. Mm -hmm. That is a remarkable thing for adam clayton to have said i think yeah, it just goes to show that all of that stuff is nonsense i mean i don't i think you two are constantly questioning what they do or certainly were constantly questioning what they do and how they put it out into the world whether they're still doing that now or not i suppose is more of a debatable point i think it's blindingly obvious to anyone who's taking just a vague look at you two's career that they were obviously very self-analytical and wanting to you know, they'd had, undoubtedly, despite the critical sort of backlash with Rattle and Hum, they'd undoubtedly had an incredible amount of success with the Joshua Tree. We've just gone on about how it's one of the best-selling albums of the 80s of all time, actually. Yeah. Mm. Um, and the temptation for most bands would have been to make the Joshua Tree part two, which I have to say, as much as I like the Joshua Tree... The thought of a part two or, or the thought of them doing that again does not appeal to me at all because I think they pretty much cracked it with the Joshua Tree. So the yeah. fact that they had the foresight to be like, we can't do that again, despite it being a massive success. We cannot do that again. We have to do something else. I think it says loads for them. Massive, mm. massive and risk to take. Uh, and I think, you know, particularly because they seemed like they kind of had exhausted that on rattle and hum anyway mm. i mean how how much further behind the time are you going to continue to go down like you know they couldn't have three albums later you know they couldn't have done like a kind of gregorian chant album or something <laughs> do you know what i mean like they can't keep tracing it back and back and back and back yeah um but i guess what nobody would have expected is for them to go right into the future uh and I, I think they're self-aware enough to understand why people made those criticisms of them. I mean, there's a, again, a quote from Bonner says, just because something's new to us, it doesn't mean it's new to our audience. They knew about the blues. They knew about BB King. It looked to them like we were taking credit or trying to introduce them to something that they were already familiar with. There's hours of takes and footage in Rattle and Hum, and there's no joy in any of it. Mm. I mean, you know, I, like we talked about in the first half, you can see the kind of um, the fairly serious, po-faced and frustrated band that are that are there on, on Rattle and Hum. And I understand those criticisms from, let, let's be honest, quite snobby music fans would have gone, wow, what, don't, you, you don't know B.B. King is? Well, he's been around for ages. Mm -hmm. Like, that's a real kind of gatekeeper-y bullshit attitude. Mm -hmm. I think. Yep. yep. Um, Bono also says, making Act on Baby is the reason we're still here. And now it is the pivot point where we are either going forward as this or it was our moment to implode. I thought this was it. The band breaks up to, due to artistic differences 
What a cliche. So, you know, shit's on the line. Let's be very, very clear about that. Um, uh, nobody likes U2 and U2 are aware of it. I say nobody. As we said, Rat and Hum still sold 14 million copies and they're still massive. But the general consensus, I guess like something like the, what's comparable now? Something like the Kardashians. How often do you hear people slagging off the Kardashians? But they've still got, Kylie Jenner's still got 20, 30 million followers on Instagram. Um, maybe maybe the key distinction is no one's admitting to liking you two. Yeah, that might be what it is. Mm, I mean, point. Joshua Tree sold fuckloads. People like you too. Like, there mm. are people who like you too. I just don't think they're not considered a cool band anymore at this mm. point. That that was what it was. It was a weird one for me as well because, like, just as a sort of kicking off point for the record, it was actually the next U2 album that I bought after Rattle and Hum. Right. Hmm. Uh, and you know what? I was sort of confused. Mm, and I, I bet. think plenty of people probably were. I bet. In fact, going forward way into the future, um, you and I had a conversation um, about the Zoo TV in Sydney tour. That um, and I bought that on video just after Zeropa came out, which is Zeropa we'll talk about in a bit. Is very much the the reload to uh, Acton Baby's load, absolutely. Um, and how that was the sort of point where I really didn't want to give you two any of my time anymore, mm. and how it kind of pales in comparison to Rattle and Hum, which is kind of controversial sounding thing to say now. I reckon. Mm. Um, uh, although I still think there's a a little tiny nugget of truth in that but do you remember like when it was actually just for you listening before we started the podcast we talked about many things that we can do and one of them was a talk through of sort of big concert films and we did we had a go at doing it yeah and the thing that we did was was this we had this idea to basically i don't know exactly where it was going to fit within the riot act um canon but we had this idea where we would basically do a sort of um, viewers commentary of concert films. And um, uh, yeah, we trialed it watching, uh, what, what is the video called? Sorry. Uh, it's called Zoo TV. It's, it's in the Sydney one that you can watch. Which is a brilliant, on one to, brilliant one to trial it with because there's a lot to talk about. Good God. Mm. Um, mm. I wonder if we must have that recording somewhere. It's not very good, but you know, it's around um yeah. and um yeah uh it was an int i mean we obviously decided not to pursue the idea i think more for complicated annoying technical reasons like yeah. we, we couldn't get access we like we can't upload the the songs playing in the background at the same time and you would have had to like mm. line up our podcast along with a youtube stream and then press play both at the same time it all just seemed a bit complicated basically and probably not worth the effort um but yeah what a bizarre show i mean i'm assuming you don't want to go too far into the show yet no let's save it that was just a kind of tease sure. as to how you two could kind of alienate someone uh <laughs> but then also presumably turn a hell of a lot of people around the other way it, it's a it's a it's a bizarre and funny thing i think what we should actually start off um doing is to put the time of the album into context a bit more. Now, we've spoken about 1991 quite a lot on the Guns N' Roses special we did, and it's funny how this massive career-defining record by both Guns N' Roses and U2 came out the same year, Joshua Tree and Appetite for Destruction, and they both followed up those records in the same year as well, both instances with some fairly 
radical changes and think, radical ideas. I think that, you um, can take fairly out of that. Yeah, there's some massively <clears throat> radical changes and ideas that probably and definitely, in fact, weirded a lot of people out. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Um, so we won't go too much into what was happening, particularly in 1981, but just to recap, massive albums again, the Blockbuster album, Nevermind 10, Out of Time by R.E.M., Use Your Illusion 1 and 2, The Black Album, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, Bad Motor Finger, Loveless by My Bloody Valentine, Spiderland by Splint, Screamer Delica by Primal Scream, Stars by Simply Red, Queen Gretz Hits 2, Dangerous by Michael Jackson, We Can't Dance by Genesis, Waking Up the Neighbours by Brian Adams, OG by Ice-T, Death Certificate by Ice Cube, Low End Theory by A Tribe Called Quest, Apocalypse 91 by Public Enemy, Diamonds and Pearls by Prince. Basically, um, nothing that has anything to do with the Joshua Tree whatsoever. Absolutely. Um, just as a quick aside, you talk about how 1996 is the best year for music of all time. Gada, gada, gada. Certainly a contender. Mm-hmm. Um, I often point to 91. Uh, often. I think it's definitely a contender. I mean, the the stuff that yes. came out that year it's fucking unbelievable year for music there's mm. actually an unbelievable kind of three four month period in the sort of late summer early autumn early fall for our american listeners um which is just astonishing it's ridiculous you know um but yeah incredible year for music 1991 yeah really really good um but like i said basically stuff that's got nothing to do with the joshua tree um and you two obviously trying to get away from that record. I mean, this is sort of really, I think, where you can make a proper case in point for you two turning into, no pun intended, since it's their record label, but an island. Hey. Because, thank you, because um, they weren't part of the UK indie scene nope. at all. They Absolutely were far not. too big yep. for that. And even the sort of bands who inspired that stuff, like The Cure or you know Susie and the Banshees or, or whatever Joy Division that should become a new order they weren't part of that either um UK music at that point as well had yet to become Britpop which just sort of went over the top and became this huge sort of big cultural thing and you know the Baggy and the Grebo thing 30 something by Carter came out this year um EMF released Unbelievable you know that was sort of what British indie music was so it's that Manchestery dance thing and at that point Joshua Tree nothing to do, you two and nothing to do with that at all couldn't be further away from it they definitely weren't part of the American strand of alternative rock at all um I guess when you look back at the sort of more Americana style parts of Pearl Jam or Screaming Trees or Temple of the Dog came out this year. I think it's not, a, it's probably one of the closest things of what we're about to talk about, but then that isn't really what people thought about when they thought about alternative rock, is it? They thought about Jane's Addiction. Mm-hmm. They thought about the kind of scabrous punk of Nirvana. Mm-hmm. Um, they thought about kind of more metally, darker, heavier, harder, riffy stuff. And that's not really the Joshua Tree either. And I'm going to say they didn't want to, and they really didn't fit into the kind of the other stadium bands that surrounded them. I mean, I mentioned Genesis and Simply Red a minute ago. Like you rightly said about Simply Red, that was about to go stratospheric supernova. Obviously, Genesis with Phil Collins were 
massive. But they're not that kind of boring, bland, really, you know, the kind of Patrick Bateman stadium pop mm, yeah. that was popular in the 80s. And, you know, to slightly, very, very slightly diminishing returns at the beginning of the 90s, because mm. it was still massive. Let's not pretend it wasn't at all. Yeah. They're nothing to do with that either. They weren't pop in the way that Michael Jackson was pop. They weren't. They certainly weren't metal. They certainly weren't gangster rap. I mean, you know, even though they took Public Enemy out on tour with them on Zoo TV, they certainly weren't gangster rap. So what were they? I mean, we're going to try and find that out. But just so you know, I don't think even they knew what they were at the time. And that is a pretty fascinating space to inhabit, I think. One of the key brilliant things about this record is 29 years on it's extraordinarily difficult to put into words exactly what this album is Mm. um you will see lots of descriptions of it which will discuss um industrial goth electronic bits and pieces electronica stuff that they were using uh god throw some other ones out for me steve well how do people describe this record berlin yeah the berlin Berlin stuff um and all of that is true to some degree um others more so than others but it also none of those things really sum up what this record is either it's a hell of a it's a hell of a difficult record to sum up really it's really Mm. hard this is easily um, I've already said on the Joshua Tree part that this song, that this album, is my favourite of the of the two. But it's the harder one to talk about in terms of summing up what it is. It's really yeah, hard, so. really hard to sum up what it is. Mm. It really is, and I think we need to like hammer down and nail exactly because I think one of the you know I've sort we've sort of said it already everyone hated you too and people were getting bored of them and there are all these accusations and all these things happened about them. I, I don't think we can hammer home just how, just how strongly that was being said and, and also how much the band admit that it affected them really. I mean, there's, there's a, a quote from Bono that says, we look like this big overgrown rock band. You go back to Ireland as conquering heroes and they just look at you and go, ugh, they look American. They looked at us and they thought, here was this interesting post-punk phenomenon and you go to America and we'll run with you on the Joshua Tree, but you've come back and actually you're not very good at this. When we used to go to the point and see the clash, bands like that were the enemy. Had we become the enemy? We hadn't created any great crimes against art. We'd just become a little self-conscious and overblown. So the band themselves are looking in the mirror and going, you know, like... I." we don't recognize ourselves anymore because people are going, you're that, you're this, you're that. Like I said, in the first part, there's this kind of what I guess now would be termed as cultural appropriation that people kind of, you know, that's now what they would be penning you to as when in actual fact, it's just that they heard howling wolf and thought this is really good. You want to make an album that's inspired by it. Um, and and that is their big crime and and you know really doing a deep dive on this stuff that this newfound love that they had for this stuff has turned so many people against them and they probably look in the mirror and they go yeah you know actually as much as we love this stuff it's not really where we came from and people will be very quick to go oh what happened to you in in everything 
Do you know what I mean? What what happened to you? Where why have you got too big for your boots? It's mm-hmm. a really, you know, it's a really common thing for this part of the world to tear people down when they're getting too big for their boots. The media is accused of it all the time, building especially in music or just art of any kind, I guess. I think particularly in music, though, building artists up only to tear them down later on um, in their careers. And to be fair, music journalism history is rife with that kind of thing. You know, it definitely happens. It's absolutely rife with it. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a very clear thing that that does happen. Yeah, it is. It's, uh, it's, you know, it's something that we that we do uh i don't know if it's consciously or unconsciously but it seems to be something about the psyche of this part of the world that people like to do that and i guess do you mean when you say when you say this part of the world do you mean the uk specifically or do you mean western world or what are you referring to there i think it is particular for ireland and the united kingdom i agree yeah Mm. don't know why but i i agree it's definitely a particular Mm. quirk of ours i don't really know why that is though yeah it's annoying it's quite weird it's annoying it's it is kind of annoying, yeah. But I guess we're probably guilty uh, but, of it somewhere along the line. But but it is oh, annoying. Absolutely. I'm sure we are. That that oh, they used to be good, and then I yeah. mean, we did it with a manic. We kind of did it a bit with a manic. Well, we did, yeah, yeah, true. Well, I mean, I I would I would argue that their music. You know, I don't mind them dressing differently if their music's still really really good. Mm. And mm. that's why I was like, yeah, everything must go. I'm with it. But then after that, that's when I think, well, when your songs aren't as good and you're not as exciting anymore. If you um, tolerate this, I don't tolerate it though. That's the thing. <laughs> uh, so I guess my children won't be next. Um, but anyway, so you two took a break. Uh, the biggest, longest break that they had ever taken as a band. The nine month break, in fact. Can have a um, baby in that time. <laughs> you can, yeah. Some of us can, anyway. <laughs> uh, <laughs> During that time, the began the band began to once again try and find new types of music to listen to on their own, and um, a couple of them became fascinated by the rave scene and you know the sort of youth culture movement that was happening in Manchester. Uh, the Edge actually started to go back and listen to the style of music influence in the first place, namely the post punk sound that had then morphed at that point into industrial music from bands like Nine Inch Nails, The Young Gods, KMFDN, and um, I, I can never say this band's name properly, Einstazende Neubauten. Whoa. I right? don't know who you're talking about. Einstazende Neubauten. They're a German sort of post-industrial, post-industrial oh. thing. Now you, you know. said it. Now you said it again. Yes, I do recall seeing that written. But down. I can never, that I can never hard, say yeah. the name properly. Yeah, yeah I'd yeah. never even. Um, attempt, I wouldn't even attempt it. Not with the shit yeah. I get on Twitter. No, no. Well, <laughs> just sorry. You can't I, pick. You can't pick me up on that because you don't know how to say it. So you have got to leave that. <laughs> we'll, get, we'll find out if I said it right later on. Uh, I had a mate at school used to say, when he said Czechoslovakia. The best thing about the Czech Republic coming in is my mate used to say Czechoslovakia yeah. and he used to call it Czechoslovakia, <laughs> which is not right. <laughs> That's definitely not right. Definitely not right. So I think I'm closer with Einstazende Nybalten than I am than Czechoslovakia. Absolutely. Uh, um, Larry Malagini says after New Year's Eve gig of 1989 where the band said they're going to kind of go and dream it all up again um, there wasn't very much communication between us Bono and the Edge just went off and tried to find new ways of writing things so you know 
he remembers it being uh, a little bit fractured, which I'm sure we'll come back to in a bit. Adam says there was a little bit of abandonment. And in a lot of that abandonment, I spent in not good places. Um, Yeah. Uh, The Edge sort of talks about um, what happened with, I guess, Baggy and... um, the whole thing that happened in Manchester. Uh, he says, there's a moment when rock and roll and club culture came together, rock being made for dancing. You can trace Manchester back to German theory, Stockhausen, these modern ideas of what composition should be about. It was an education in rhythm that we couldn't ignore. Um, we've never really spoken much about uh, that Manchester sort of factory records, Hacienda thing, other than to sort of go, oh, the Chemical Brothers came along and, and stuff like that and we didn't really like it um i was always a bit like i don't really know how we got from joy division to rave really in sort of in the space of eight or nine years those things are so different but they basically did come out of the same place that's pretty amazing really isn't it yeah that is a good point actually i've never really considered that maybe because I personally don't like either scene, but no, I think you're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, it kind of slowly metamorphosized in from baggy into that rave culture over the period of 10 years or so. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Well, post-punk and then new order and then just sort of computerized music. I mm. mean, we've spoken about it a little bit before. I can't remember what it was in relation to, but I was listening to something or editing something recently where we were talking about 24 hour party people. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is a brilliant film, which is basically about that entire scene. Yeah, that is a great account of that. And again, I mean, it, that's a piece of edge. I would like to watch a documentary about it because that is a piece of sort of filmmaking, which I think is really, really entertaining and, and, and quite educational as well, but not to the depth that I would sort of like to try and understand it, if you know what I mean. I imagine things have been changed, yada, yada, yada to make it see well there's there's bits aren't there more or less where i mean steve coogan breaks the fourth wall constantly in that um film and sort of addresses the camera and will say, say things like this isn't the way this happened by the way but it makes me mm. look better blood you know uh so yeah so as a documentary it's not the thing to watch but as a, as a film which gives you an idea of the hacienda and, and its importance at that time it's brilliant you know it's a fantastic film mm. um And also, you know, I've spoken before about rave culture being very punk rock. Mm. And I think that probably anyone who grew up remembering punk and not being completely married to its sonic uh, ideology, uh, more married to its sort of its boundaryless idea rather than the sound of it, the look of it and the feel of it as you two obviously were, because they just went on to do a like Americana country record. Yeah. And yet they very much came from punk. Yeah. I can absolutely see why they would have seen that and gone, cool, this is really exciting. This is oh. really cool. This reminds me a bit of punk. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can totally see the line there, 100%. Yeah, for sure. Um, Bon actually said the other thing is, Bono says, German music always had a huge impact on us. From Kraftwerk when I was 16, this is soul music from Europe, the invention of electronic music. It had a big influence on Joy Division, which had a big influence on us. That seems um, pretty standard as well, I think. You know, the influence of craft work on lots of things over the years. Industrial music, again, post-punk. What became, I guess, new romantic. uh, 
all of that can really be traced back to Kraftwerk, who are a band who we haven't really spoken about much, mainly because I've never really listened to them that I ha- much. I have to confess I haven't either. But then having said that, everyone knows what the Kraftwerk sound is, don't they? And it's that kind of... <clears throat> I'm sure there are examples, although I'm struggling to think of them at the moment. It's difficult to think of an example of a band who had that kind of robotic, rhythmical, repetitive sense to them pre-Craftwork. Maybe Gary Newman, although that was around the same time. That's not pre. Yeah, is it not pre? Craft. Okay. There is there is no pre-Craftwork. Right. As far go. as I'm aware. Yeah. I mean, yeah. stuff like Throbbing Gristle would come or Suicide could come along, like not that far after it. Mm-hmm. Um, which then became like the human league. like you know the fact that throbbing gristle and the human league basically come from a birth from craft work it's pretty funny oh yeah god it's insane yeah 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 when you think about it i mean craft are a band who like they played the south bank of london not yeah many years ago doing their 3d show didn't they you know and like mm-hmm. yeah it's insane to think it's insane to think that throbbing gristle comes from craft work but it does of course it does yeah where yeah, else it really is it does. coming from it's not Billy um, holiday and no certainly not <laughs> uh so the edge um he went off and decided to put some of his ideas together uh and for the first time ever used loops and drum machines to sort of complement the ideas the first sort of ideas that he had um which is you know a pretty new idea for the band at one point um he actually suggested that when it came to the recording of the album that they use a drum machine and they don't use Larry Mullen Jr. Um, which he was which, delighted by, obviously. Which <laughs> is at the start of a pretty big part of the push and pull mm. of this record. Now, Larry Mullen Jr. at the time was listening to Jimi Hendrix and Cream, um, which is a much more natural progression from mm-hmm. the Joshua Tree, I think. Absolutely. Uh, it, it's not the radical reinvention that you 2 wanted or the Edge and Bono wanted. Hence a lot of tension. Hence quite a lot of tension. Um just um but, just as a quick aside with the um uh loops and stuff that um the edge was using, um definitely still a very different sound to what he was known for. Although I think there are uh comparisons to be made with the digital delay stuff that we went that, well, that I went on about so much in the last part and looping technology and samples and so on and so forth. I definitely think there are um comparisons to be made i don't think they're the same thing at all well they're not mm. the same thing no, at they're all. Not. but but, the, but you could understand why someone who <clears throat> likes that digital delay sound when looking for something new would then go over to to loops and drum machines and so on and so forth i think yeah i i, I can i can also understand how someone like larry mullen jr who plays so much with feel and has a sort of technique which it's not a standard rock drummer technique. He's got quite a, a quite a different style to to most typical rock drummers. Would be listening to stuff like you know you go back to Rattle and Hum, and he's the one who's excited about going to see Elvis and all this kind of stuff. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I can understand his kind of fear of going. Where do I fit in in the kind of the Manchester world? Like you mm-hmm. know how can you do that um the edge said berlin's about texture and manchester is about rhythm um so sort of taking that principle of them wanting to do those those two things it's going to be 
for Larry Mullen Jr. listening to, you know, Ginger Baker and then being told, no, 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 you've got to play like a kind of synthesized drum machine. That's got to be a bit like, what? What the fuck? Well, um, I can see why it seemed like a bit of a kick in the teeth. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously it um, it starts with the sort of mere suggestion of, hey, maybe we should use uh, use more drum machines mm. on the new album and mm-hmm. sort of develops into a full-blown like what the fuck is going on so uh but that's for a little bit later um obviously the other big influence on the record initially was um something way away from music which was the fall of the berlin wall which fell on the 8th of november 1989 and led to the announcement of the end of the cold war three weeks later and the reunification of germany came about in october 1990 um this as a metaphorical sort of piece of um serendipitous symmetry kind of served the band as an inspiration that berlin was a place of rebirth reunification um they saw a changing city a redeveloping city a city that was kind of um, rediscovering its reputation in front of the eyes of the world and believed that they as a band needed to do the same thing so wanting to align themselves in this moment in history off they went and they actually took the last flight into East Berlin before the reunification of Germany on the 3rd of October 1990. They were on the final ever BA flight into old Germany back in the day. I mean, just a quick, now, just a quick aside on that. We've, we've discussed in the past about how there are bands who take, out, who take outside influences from just music and nothing else and then there are bands and generally the bands that we tend to champion more who will still take um influence from music but also take influence from i don't know it might be a scene in a film that makes them want to um try and interpret how they feel watching that scene in a film in a musical way or a painting or um (laughs) the state of a country uh and like what's happening to it you know Again, it's that thing that we discuss quite a lot in terms of like taking influences so far outside of even the medium that you are working in and bringing those in. And undoubtedly, when you say Berlin in relation to Acton Baby, even though, as we're going to go into, maybe, you know, not as much of it was uh, recorded in Berlin as people might assume. um, There's an undeniable connection there. And they're undeniable mm. out with the old, in with the new thing that Berlin was going through at the time. So yeah. I think that's brilliant. Like, that's awesome. Like, that's such a big scale thing to take influence from and then somehow manage to seep it into your music as well. That's brilliant. Well, I was going to say now, <laughs> there's that thing. I agree with you. But what I would say also is it takes some serious fucking balls to look at an event as monumental and as transitory as the fall of the Berlin Wall. And equate it to the problems that you, a four-piece rock band from Ireland, are having. Well, now, that, that's one way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. A more yeah, cynical so way of looking I think at it, but sure. It is. Yeah. So I think the accusations of these delusions of grandeur, Yes. Um, rather than looking at it in a positive light, I think people could have gone, oh, look at you two flucking flying over to Berlin, thinking that they're part of the bloody revolution, that they're going to be part of the... Do you know what I mean? Like, I, oh, fuck the revolution, I, I, as Bono said. Yeah, I I mean, I bet that a lot of people 
I bet that a lot of people thought that. I don't know because I don't really remember this record coming out and oh, I don't I can... remember the sort of build up to it, but I absolutely guarantee you that people were like, what, how fucking dare they equate themselves with, you know, oh, we are the Berlin Wall, the Joshua Tree's the Berlin Wall and we are the, you know, we are East Germany smashing through it to a better future. Like you fucking arrogant twats. I'm sure people thought that. I can believe that. Definitely. Um, I would have thought that the majority of the people with that attitude were already coming to the band with a bias, a, a, a negative Definitely. bias, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, I can understand that rhetoric. I don't agree mm. with it, but I understand it. I I personally don't agree with it um, either. I think it's um, I think it's a wicked thing to do to plonk you plonk yourself in the middle of a very sort of culturally significant and important period in history for you know this country and to try and soak up those like you say those non-musical influences is yeah. fucking brilliant try and soak them up and um uh create something from them like what's wrong with that and and that's that cynical rhetoric as well also kind of makes the assumption that by doing that you two are saying that their art is as important as the fall of the Berlin Wall. And that's a massive assumption. That's a massive leap that those cynical people have taken based on absolutely nothing, as far as I can see. Um, unless you've mm. got a quote there where Bono says, uh, Acton Baby is the most important thing to happen since the fall of the Berlin Wall or whatever, which I don't think no. you do. Um, no. So, yeah, yeah, nonsense. Mm. Nonsense, um, as uh, <laughs> yes, um, Phil Collins, Phil Collins yeah. says. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, the big problem is that you two arrived in Berlin along with Brian Eno and Daniel Lanois and Flood, the team that had served them so well um, on the last few albums, and found that Berlin was not quite the utopia that they had been led to believe. Now, there's a clip from a documentary I watched called From the Sky Down, which um, charts the band relearning the songs 20 years after its release, um, yeah. where Larry Mullen... Um, it's, it's old footage from when they were originally recording the record one of the things they're talking about is a lot of cars like cars would come from east germany when they knew the war would, was down people would just get all their stuff in a car and drive the car to get into west germany and their car would just like just be fucked and just run out of gas and these old shitty old cars and they'd just be left on the side of the road so people would leave these cars on the side of the road well, Ber and, berlin's like, the home of the trabi do you know what the trabi is uh, I don't know. Very, 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 very old car from the 70s. God, I don't even know how to describe them. I'm not really a car guy. I suppose the equivalent would be like a three-wheeler. I mean, you don't even get three-wheelers these days. No. Not that Trabbies are three-wheelers, but they are very tiny, spluttery cars, probably utter, utterly awful for the environment, I would imagine. No seatbelts uh in trabbies um they do i know about this because they do trabby tours and the one time that i've been to berlin i went on a trabby tour and it was excellent um and it was lovely being in this quite quaint car but also fucking petrifying because they it feels like there's maybe two millimeters of metal between you and other cars on the road and there there are no uh seat belts i think i'm I'm sure they must have had to put they must have had to put seatbelts. I'm remembering them with no seatbelts, but then they must have had to put them in surely to make that legal. I don't know. Maybe not in Germany. I've no idea. But yeah. Um, but that's the sort of thing I think you'll probably Yeah, to. yeah, 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 yeah. So these cars would burn out and, and they're tiny on the ZTV they're tiny. on the ZTV tour, uh like after the record came out, they toured this, if 
you've seen it, you will see endless cars hanging from you know ropes and uh, cables around the venue yeah. uh i guess in some kind of like you know monument to that particular period but we'll talk about zoo tv and all the fucking mental shit that went with it <laughs> a little bit later on but yeah there's a clip of larry looking at one of these cars and a policeman stops him and asks for his papers and oh. and the guy he sort of looks around it's all in german and the guy uh who's sort of chaperoning the band says no 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 we don't do this sort of thing anymore this is over and the police officer says no it's not over this is still very much happening. Give us your... Pa- and and is really fucking aggressive, right? So it's kind of scary to see that. Wow. Like this dude clinging on to the idea of like what Berlin was and, you know, what he's been kind of had as a soldier kind of and a, and a police officer drilled into him for so long and just mm. absolutely refusing to go, nope, this is not a new dawn. This is the, the same Berlin as we ever, uh, you know, we ever we've had for you know the last what would it have been 30 or so years um in fact the first night they went to berlin as a band they ended up like going out to see what was going on in in the city and joining the celebrations of the kind of reunified germany and they found this mass kind of rally of people and um they did not look like they were having a good time these people in fact bono described it as grim very grim <laughs> he then realized after sort of an hour or so of them coming down that they, they weren't actually a party of people in celebration of the wall coming down they were actually a protest meeting that had been put together to have the wall put back up oh okay so that <laughs> wow. is that you know it, it, so their initial kind of like oh we'll go to berlin it's this brand new utopia well mm. not quite not quite yet guys unfortunately um you know these kind of things take time well yeah this. i was gonna say it, it is gonna take time isn't it and it's not gonna be a switch where everyone goes hooray we're happy that the burning wall's down is it you know but mm. but then at the same time i can understand why if you have the means and the resources and let's face it the money um and you have the opportunity to go to a city when it's in that transition or at the beginning of that transition is probably more accurate um mm. you'd fucking do it i would of course i just think it's quite an interesting um metaphor for uh for the, this album 100%. in a lot of ways yeah because um you know it it didn't necessarily solve anything straight away um so obviously the band had to have a studio they initially went to Hansa Studios in Berlin. Now, that is a studio where David Bowie made his Berlin trilogy of low uh, heroes in 1979, and Iggy Pop made The Idiot as well. Um, those three Bowie records, of course, were produced by Brian Eno, who I think is an essential part of all of those artists, or both those artists' stories. Undoubtedly. Um. Now, uh, just a quick thing about Hansa Studios. Um, it's located next to Potterdam Platz, which is where the wall went right through the centre of Berlin. And on the eastern side of the wall, there were a group of travellers, a kind of gypsy community. Um, and during the period while the wall was up, they were just parked out there. And um, they were kind of then legally told, oh, you can have that land, like, you know, you can sort of be you they were given this land right and they were given this these sort of houses stuff near it and um when as soon as the wall came down this entire gypsy community were suddenly in 
uh, owning and, and in um, in proposition. That's not the word I'm looking for at all. What's the word in ownership? What's another word for ownership? Doesn't matter. Ownership will do. Um, they suddenly owned the most expensive real estate in Germany. Uh, yes, I know this. I've been there. Yeah, it's, it's pretty mad, that, isn't it? It's mm. abs- It's a really interesting, odd community smack bang in the center of Germany. <laughs> mm. um, but it's cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and right next to them is Hansa Studios. Yes, I didn't. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know or notice the studios there, but I know. I know the. Um, I know the part of Berlin that you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, so there you go. That was where they sort of ended up. As I said, Brian Eno was there with them. We didn't really talk much about Brian Eno in the first half because I thought I'd sort of save it for the second half. Bono has described Brian Eno as our art school. Uh, he sort of said every band that um, that they loved when they were growing up had kind of been through art school, and Brian Eno was was their art school in sort of not being able to go through art school. Um, their sort of lack of formal learning in music uh they were sort of obviously essentially self-taught and got together and jammed as a band but they attribute so much of their growth as musicians down to brian eno so we should definitely mention him as not just an integral part of the work that he did over the years um and the, the fact that when he left them for an album pop it was you know a pretty critical disaster. Mm. Uh, we don't have much time to talk about Brian Eno and his influence he had on the band and on Bowie and the likes of the sort of Banshees and Talking Heads, but he's a sort of visionary musical genius. I mean, oh, maybe God, this is yeah. for another time, but maybe this is for another time. But I just think um, it's, we like I say, we didn't get a chance to talk about Brian Eno too much. I, he's got such a massive back catalogue. I wouldn't even know where to sort of begin with people because... I don't know, to be honest. Even just, even if you're just talking about his own works, he's got an insane mm. amount of kind of like ambient, uh, uh, you know, self-released work. Well, I say self-released work. I mean, it probably isn't these days. Um, yeah, yeah, just an enormous sort of catalogue of stuff um, that he's done himself, as well as the artists that he's worked for. I mean, this period of sort of, well, the 80s predominantly, 70s as well i guess is just and 90s yeah fuck it and 90s i mean brian eno had an unbelievably massive impact on modern music Mm. and he's a sort of genuine composer i feel like you sort of look at people sometimes and you go you must hear music different to how i hear it he 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 strikes me. I've only seen a few interviews with Brian Eno and stuff. Um, I'd actually recommend um, the, the Adam Buxton podcast. There's been at least one, if not two, or maybe it was just a two-parter. I think it was just a two-parter, actually, interview with Brian Eno, which is fascinating if you've not heard it. Um, and like there's there's a very George Martin-esque-ness to him, I think. Um, the fifth beetle you know the, there's that mm. i think they come from the same school of music a theory ability yada 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 just in terms of like i believe well i i don't actually know this about brian you know but i believe there is a lot of um theory behind what he does but he's also willing to experiment and break the rules from time to mm. time so I, I, th- I think that's the school of the school that he comes from there's a clip um, that I've seen once where there it's it's Bono recording the vocals to Pride in the Name of Love, and yeah, and he gives it like 
everything. And at the end, Brian Eno is like, I actually feel like it would be better if we had more restraint on the first verse and it all kind of builds and builds and builds throughout the song. Um, he said, I think dynamically that would be more interesting, but um, I'm unwilling to stifle your your creativity too much. Mm, yeah. And that as a summation of like, Brian Eno is a man who, like I say, obviously understands music theory and understands and hears music in a very kind of um, almost, I, I guess, a kind of some people hear music in quite methodical ways, mm. quite kind of learned, methodical ways. And then some people just feel stuff. Mm. I think if you get someone who understands how music works sort of conceptually, but is also willing to put that to one side and allow their stomach to tell them how to you know what what is going to work in that situation that is i think probably where the best producers and the best creators of music that's where that is they sort of that that stems from i think absolutely it's the struggle between the mind which is theory and the gut, the gut, which is the feel of it and the emotion and the cracking of the voice, which, you know, according to theory, quote unquote, is wrong, incorrect. But of course, according to the actual impact and the feel of it and how we respond to it is absolutely correct. Um, yeah, it's that it's that push and pull between those two things that makes amazing producers more often than not. Probably not always, but more often than not, I would say. Yeah, I think so. I actually listened to Heroes by David Bowie. Um, in the sort of build up to this to sort of try and understand exactly what the Berlin sound was and I actually find it quite a difficult thing to again a bit like acting baby it's quite a difficult thing to pinpoint it is what yeah. he does and and how you sort of define that because well particularly if you take all three of those Bowie albums it kind of makes it even yeah. harder like it, sh it should make it clearer but no it just confuses what, you if you if you add in the Iggy Pops album as well, then yeah. it makes it yeah. nigh on impossible. Yeah, 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 definitely. But but mm. having said that, there is some kind of undefinable connection those those four records and and beyond that as well. I think. But yeah, it's difficult to put your finger on what it is and try and describe it out loud. Mm. Um, yes, it is. So there you go. Anyway, we just. Obviously, I didn't want people going like, you did a whole thing about YouTube and you didn't even chat about Brian Eno and how great Brian Eno was. Um, he is, I'm sure, one day, again, he will come up in conversation because... I'm pretty confident. I'm pretty confident we'll come back to Brian Eno at some point. I don't know exactly when, but I'm sure we'll find an excuse. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Um, so in terms of getting into that studio, the band and the production team got together in Berlin and initially Daniel Lanois was not so sure about the direction that the band uh, wanted to take. He was kind of expecting them to go back and revisit this sort of wide sonic soundscapes of the Joshua Tree um, and actually asked Bono and The Edge why they were working on music together um, in isolation away from the other two rather than working as a quartet like the, they usually did and also asked them why they were focusing on what he called throwaway trashy kinds of things now daniel lanoir has um since gone back on the idea that uh there were troubles or, or what, what he said is he's refused to be drawn into what he calls the national inquirer 
portion of the story. Um, he said, I'd say we had some pretty interesting and lengthy discussions during the making of this album and it's better for it. I find it difficult to divorce myself from the record and be totally objective, but I do think that you two needed to return to more European exoticism. Um, other than that, he won't really be drawn on the... Uh, the how close things came to kind of falling apart because he doesn't really want to talk about that. But apparently he and Bono nearly came to blows over the direction of mysterious ways. Yeah, I read about this. Yeah, bonkers. Um, I don't know the specific reason. Do you know a bit more about that? But I don't know because I think they're all just sort of in, inferring to a lot of it rather than actually... Yeah, I mean, to a, to a degree, it's no one's business is it really but then having said that in terms in terms of like putting this album into context of like the creative i mean there were there there appeared to be two certainly within the band there were two very strong camps bono the Mm. edge and adam clayton and larry mullen jr uh or the other two as some people say um and i think i think um you know you've got three sort of key background background you've got three personnel key personnel who are working on this record alongside the band in brian eno uh lenoir and um flood flood thank you um and obviously there there are going to be disagreements and i think for the most part am i right when i say eno was kind of on the edge and bono's side and lenoir lenoir was kind of kind of on Mullen Jr. and um, Clayton side, or is that incorrect? Would you say? I don't know. I don't think it's uh, no. I don't think it's incorrect. Uh, I don't know how accurate. Well, I put it this way: I don't know how accurate it would be. But from what I understand, um, I mean, we'll talk about what Brian Eno thought of the record and how he wished they could have gone further mm. uh, and and tried to make sure they did go further next time. Um, uh, Daniel Lanois, uh, obviously initially didn't feel like it was the right thing to do Mm. um and i mean adam clayton was a sort of admitted that um he threw the bass at bono at one point and said you know if you want to play it if you want to either tell me what to play or you play it is what he said to him um he said that they were underprepared and the ideas that the edge and bono had brought to the recording studio hadn't really been turned into coherent ideas and they jam through things and just nothing was happening. Uh, the Edge has compared it to um, trying on a new leather jacket and wondering how it might fit you in the future. That's what he said those initial sort of um, sessions were like. Um, Not a bad analogy, actually. It's quite good. It's pretty good. Yeah. yeah, it's a pretty good analogy. And also, I think they were kind of expecting the magic of Hansa Studios to do a lot of the work for them. So Bono said, there's a kind of faith that you need as a collective unit to move from one note to the next. And that wasn't the mood we were in. We felt that when we walked into this place, it's so full of greatness that this greatness will seep into us. But that greatness isn't there. That greatness has left the building. At this moment, I couldn't imagine what we're going to become. Um, And yeah, I mean, they've kind of admitted, I mean, Adam Clayton admitted that the band played together in these sessions like they always did they sort of improvised what they tend to do i I believe you two is get in a room and improvise with with a bit of something and then improvise and improvise it and improvise it and see 
when they get a bit of something they like to kind of go 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 with it and it's quite a you know i, I it's quite a, i i imagine you know a band like pearl jam and radiohead probably do a similar sort of thing they just bring one or two bits to the table and then they kind of t- telepathically jam it into some sort of coherent piece yeah. and that's how you two work as well um but when you're on a completely different page to each other and you're trying and you're thinking about different things it's probably hard to do that and the band were getting really frustrated with each other that they weren't doing that or they didn't feel like they were on the same page and um they would listen back to what they played and they'd go well that's not what i want and then the others would go well that's not what i want either and they just didn't like what was getting put together and also the edge was going through a divorce around the time of those sessions as well which bono has described as the first crack in the beautiful porcelain jug that was our music <laughs> but he's not pretentious don't worry um, <laughs> sometimes it's hard to defend them yeah yeah sometimes um it actually there was real chat about them breaking up around yeah. this period there was real chat that they were like well it's not going to happen this isn't really working i don't want to do this you don't want to do that we can't make it work fuck it let's just bin it off and it's actually i mean one of the reasons i brought up brian eno when i did is because brian eno is ironically for the finished project one of its sort of like oh yeah it's fine Whereas the rest are like, oh, it's such a great thing. I think Brian Eno's less keen on it. Mm. But Brian Eno is responsible for kind of making sure that the band stayed together initially because he took a bunch of the demos that the band were working on um, and he kind of pieced it together with other bits and bobs that he added to it. And he played it to them and said, look, you know, like it's not, it's not rubbish. It's not as rubbish as you think and yeah. sort of prettied up a lot of the stuff and tidied it up and, you know, sequenced it in, in ways and fucked around with it that kind of made them go, oh, well, you know, maybe we should, maybe we should continue. But I think, I mean, we mentioned the tension with Larry Mullen. I think Larry Mullen Jr. was the last person to come on board. And I can kind of understand this. I mean, he'd had his nose put out of joint with talking drum machines. And he's sort of kicking back at the idea of embracing a new sound. If you watch, like I say, if you watch Rattle and Hum, he goes to Graceland. He talks about how much he likes Elvis films. He sits on the chopper. He's having a lovely time. He f- seems fairly happy yeah, in that world. He did. Uh, and, you know, and he didn't want to change it. And to be fair to him, right, just because a few critics didn't like it. Why should he change it? Why should you fucking change? Like, I, I actually, I think that's fair enough. Yeah, totally totally fair enough i mean yeah why like especially when you see the success of it that there would be a little bit of like well why the hell do we have to change this this is obviously working for us who gives a fuck what critics think yeah i i I mean i've got to say it's fucking brave what they did and it's fucking you know and it and it's obviously panned out very well for them Mm. and larry probably looks back at it and goes yeah i probably should have just gone with it straight away but at the same time, I I don't think it's a mad I don't think it's a mad thing to think because like you say, like why the fuck should you get you're selling hundred and fifty like fucking twenty five million albums and a few sneery rock critics are getting on your back like who fucking cares? Do Absol- what you want to do. Absolutely. Um although obviously we're both being devil's advocates to a degree because as we've already discussed, 
the fact that they took this route i mean you know i i did not want a joshua tree part two and i don't think i don't think even people who adore that record i think really if you'd ask them do you really want joshua tree part two i think most people would have been like no that's not a good idea so uh long term it's easy to sort of look back on this and go oh yeah well of course that's that's the move that you make but it must have been mm. very difficult to make that decision at that time so, yeah, yeah. I, I i think it I, I can absolutely see larry mullen jr's point of view put it that way and maybe I, that's because and i think it's because i reckon in 99% of musicians in his position would go, I quite like this. I'm happy. We're selling lots of records. Let's not rock the boat. Fuck it. I was, I was also about to say, I mean, I might be getting ahead of myself ever so slightly here, but there's also, there's plenty of stuff on acting baby, which is easy to mock. Um, and whether that stuff was coming into it, you know, when Larry Mullen was unsure of the direction that they were going in or not, I don't know. But there's a lot on Acton Baby, which, especially if you look at it at a surface level, just just to take one example, the fly or the whole concept of the fly, the personal, which we will undoubtedly get into later. It's very, very, very easy to look at it at a surface level and go, well, that's who they are, rather than actually look at it and go, oh no, they're satirizing what they were or what people perceive them to be. Um, but that second conclusion um, takes some thought to get to. And most people don't bother with thought. Um, so they just see the surface and they go, oh, well, that's who they are, you know. But there were mm. loads there were loads of those kind of things on Acton Baby, which were, were really easy to mock, you know. Um, yeah. So I don't I don't know whether that played into it or not. But yeah, I mean, I, I whilst I personally think Larry Mullen Jr. was wrong, I totally understand why he would think that way. Totally. And it must be, I mean, you know, again, Daniel Lanois said the intention was to make an album that was flesh and machine. And that's particularly hard for Larry. He was now hearing things in his cans that are unusual for him and he was having to find his place within them. It was a fundamental difference to what he'd done before. Larry Monagini himself has said, I'd never played to a drum machine that was going to be so present and I didn't really know what to do. I didn't know how to give myself to it. So I think he's the one who's most affected in terms of how because you're basically going your instrument we're putting an additional we're going to have the thing that you do we're going to have another one made by a robot by a computer by a sequence thing we're going to have that as well yeah. i mean as you they said to bono like oh we're going to have you're going to be this the other we're going to have two singers now and the other one's going to be a kind of vocoder computerized voice which ironically they ended up doing in the next album anyway. But do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, exactly. Yeah, it's... Uh... It would probably be a weird thing to do. Hmm. Um, you know, um, Sidon Clayton said, the band were experiencing friction whilst running down seemingly endless numbers of blind alleys. Bono said it was never us against them. It was each man for himself, which is kind of a betrayal of, a con of the concept of a band. Hmm. And it is. Um, Brian Eno said... A band is a collective ego in a sense. That ego is very easily offended. Popularity is a great ruiner of friendships. Um, this is something that we haven't mentioned yet and something which I cannot think of many, if any, other bands of which this is true. U2 formed in 1976 and they've never broken up. They've never gone on hiatus. 
They've never changed a single member. It has always been those four men from album one to album however many we are at now. What, 14, yeah. I think it is? I, uh, I was going to say 12, 13, 14, but yeah, I don't mm. know. They have never, ever, ever once in their entire career, no one's left and come back. No one's left and never come back. No one's died. They've never split up. It has been those four individuals consistently, continually since that first record until today as we sit here and record. Mm-hmm. Name me another band that have done that. And there are examples. There aren't many. There aren't many. There aren't many. Um, and there aren't many that sell 170 million records. No, definitely not. Definitely, definitely, definitely not. Um, there are a handful, though. Uh, you've just put me on the spot. Um, I'm looking at my CD collection, by the way, to try and mm. figure this out. Uh, phew, Biffy Clyro. Yeah, Biffy Clyro is a good shout. A band you formed in the late 90s that's still going today and have been massively successful. Biffy Clyro is a pretty good shout. The fact that, I mean, also, you know, I was about to say Biffy Clyro have other uh, musicians on stage. You two have done tours. They've had other musicians mm. on stage. So that's a bit of a moot point anyway. But um, but yeah, Biffy Clyro is one. Uh, uh, they've been around half the time that you two have been around, to be, to yeah. be honest. No, 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 no. I, um, yeah. um, I, I, I fully expect them to be those three guys in another 20 years, probably. I think that's yes. not completely out of the realms of possibility. So yes, Biffy Clyro is... I would say the only other example I can think of. Um, Muse? Are, are we going out? So, so I can't go to much, much, much smaller acts, I'm assuming. We're talking about big arena. You can if you want. You can if you want. I mean, just I've, about to say twice. Yeah, there's two three pieces there, Muse and Biffy Clyro, mm-hmm. who are really, really fucking big. Yeah. Um, they've Muse haven't been around have been around maybe about the same time as Biffy Thrice have been around about the same time as those guys yeah, yeah. they split up by the way they did oh, have a hiatus right. didn't yeah, they yeah very so very can't have them. well very very brief one but yes you're right well you know yeah 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 uh, they still did yeah 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 uh that's I it, mean, really, I'm, isn't it? I, I'm struggling. I, I, I'm relatively sure there'll be a couple more examples, but I am struggling. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, the fact that I can't think of any clutch. I, I, clutch, yeah. Clutch have been around since the early '90s. Those four dudes, yeah. Clutch is I actually saw that on your wall, and I was like, I was just about to say it, and then I was like, oh. <laughs> I mean, Clutch. <laughs> Clutch at best, I mean, obviously, Clutch at best headlined the Roundhouse and have taken years and years and years and years and years to build up to that point. Uh, they've had headlined Brixton. Brixton's bigger than the Roundhouse. But yeah, yeah, yeah I mean... It's... Oh, yes, sorry, yeah. Yeah, they last headlined them. But yeah, I mean, it took them years and decades, literally decades to get yeah. to the sides. Uh, I nearly just said Tool, but Tool have had um, uh, basis, a yeah. lot of time off and a different basis. I nearly said System of a Down, but they've split up fucking four or five times. Radiance Machine have split up four or five times. Led Zeppelin's a pretty good shout, but then, you know, they were only around for 10, ten years, years, basically, with, with John Bonham. Um, I mean, obviously, I guess, obviously, if you're going to have Led Zeppelin, you might as well say the Beatles, obviously. Yeah, who were only a band for like eight or nine years. Uh, nine, I think, but yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so, you know, it's... Um, basically, it's pretty fucking astonishing that you two have been those four dudes for fucking 
what is it now? 40 plus years. Absolutely. Finding finding another example, which is that length, that size, yada, yada, yada. That, that, yeah, probably impossible, I would have thought. Mm. They may be the number one in terms of that. Yeah. I think they must be. They absolutely must be. There couldn't be anyone else. So, of course, for them to get, for us to be sitting here going, oh, the time you two nearly split up and the time they didn't really get on, and it be this brief and the results be acting baby i think that's as big an achievement as any fucking album they've made that's that's unbelievable it's amazing that they've managed to last this long and i know people might be sitting there going yeah well it's probably easy they've got their own fucking jet each and they've got their own dressing room you know they've got their own quarter of a stadium every time they turn up they've got millions and million pounds they don't release albums as much as they used to they still tour as much as they used to and i tell you what i watched a documentary from a couple of years ago and bono and the edge still go on holiday together do they <laughs> like the band don't, the four of them only stopped going on holiday together about 10 years ago wow that's amazing like they're you know this is not slipknot or something they're actually mates yeah 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 <laughs> proper actual real mates slipknot probably some of them are mates i'm sure uh, i don't he's calling taylor going on on holiday with jim root no not no, a fucking exactly. chance yeah exactly yeah 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 uh mm. yeah oh, i Obviously, for the rest of this recording, I'm going to be only half paying attention to you because I'm trying to think of other bands that could fit that category. But yes, I don't think I don't think I'll find any. So yeah. I don't think you will, mate. No, I no, think you'll really fucking struggle to find one. I am. Um, but anyway, so I just wanted to point out how I think talking about this, like, oh, they nearly split up. Well, yeah, they were always going to have a bit a moment when that happened, surely. And this you, just happened to be it. If you take the rhetoric that um, drummers aren't real people, Pearl Jam. Come on, mate. You can't <laughs> have Pearl Jam. They've got about 15 drummers. <laughs> Go on. <laughs> You've had two and they're both three pieces as well. Yeah, I know. And they've, they've, they've existed for half the amount of time well, as you two. I'd clutch and thrice. clutch. And, yeah, and thrice, yeah, okay. and thrice. Thank you very much. You know how you can't have. You oh, can't I can't have thrice. thrice. Sorry, no, you're right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thrice yeah, split yeah. up. Um, okay. Yeah, mate, you can't even have Palm Reader. They had an old before Dan came along. They had no, a different I drummer. No, I know. Um, yeah. Converge. Just, Converge. Converge. Converge used to have another guitarist, though, and he left. Oh, that's true. Fuckers. I almost did that mm. with Mastodon as well because I was like, oh, Mastodon, but they originally had a different singer, didn't they? Hmm um yeah yeah cunting out can't think of any other although mastodon's not a bad one i mean mastodon isn't a bad shout i mean i mean the the original singer i think he does appear on a couple of um the the call of the mastodon tracks which are their sort Mm. of early eps collected but if we're going from debut album mastodon's a good shout but yeah it's yeah fair enough um so anyway the edge had a demo for a song called sick puppy have you ever listened to sick puppy no no sick puppy is fucking weird man is it it's really weird to listen to so basically it's an early version of mysterious ways right right Um, i've heard heard about this but i've not listened to it yeah yeah, yeah. so there's an early version of mysterious ways is sick puppy right and 
there's a chord structure in the middle of it that Bono really liked. He's like, that's good. So the Edge says, I played these parts on an acoustic guitar and we we're trying to work out if they're any good. Danny says to us, that's um, Daniel Lanois, says to us, hey Edge, why don't you play those parts sequentially and see if they work. Let's see what happens. They did. Everyone says, that sounds really good. Let's try it in the big room. Now, if you go back and listen to that version and you have them rehearsing Sick Puppy, but with this other chord sequence in it, which is, so it's a chord sequence for one being played over Adam's bass line from Mysterious Ways. Oh, wow. Okay. It sounds really weird. It sounds mm. really fun. You're just like, oh, that's really fucking weird. Like, it's mm. cool, but it's weird. Um, so they focus on like, that chord structure in isolation. And this is where Axon Baby basically sort of starts to take shape. And it's mad hearing that part come out from nowhere in the middle of that song. So you're listening to like what you think is this kind of really rough, slightly different tempoed, um, quite different rhythmical version of Mysterious Ways, but with that very like, with that bass line in it. And then you hear the from one over the top of it. And you're like, fucking hell, that just came out as pure accident. So, the band go in, and again, you can hear the rehearsal, um, the demo of them actually in the rehearsal room doing it, with Bono um, kind of riffing over the top. He's kind of singing, no words, but he's kind of singing um, like chord structures and going D sharp, uh, A minor, now go back to the bridge. Like he's singing what the, the kind of the vocal pattern for one whilst telling the band what, they need to do next and you can actually hear that song take shape in the rehearsal room um it's really really fascinating wow. and for people who go like oh you two it's really easy and did it it's like imagine writing a song like one mm. just like from the four of you getting together and the singer like shouting out what chords you have to play and it ends up being that like come on man mm. come on yeah like it is that's powerful hearing that i was like fucking hell like i know what it takes like i remember when, when i was in the band and we would write songs and it would just be the guitarist brought like here's the chords and we'll try and see if we can get it nothing like that ever happened yeah it's um Sad. there are very few there aren't very many examples of one song that you can pinpoint that just totally uh focuses where the direction of an album is going to go but one the song one is definitely one of those cases with acting baby much mm. much smaller scale example but i remember idle wild saying that of um american english from the remote part um right. they were they were basically going to split up um uh, you know initial recordings for their third album were just not going well and then American English comes out and it literally um, persuaded them to that they were onto something and to continue and they ended up writing what I think is their best album yeah I mean there are a few but yeah it's um, that's fairly rare as well but it does happen doesn't it it's quite interesting mm. that it happens a fair amount but yeah, yeah. Uh, it is interesting and the thing is is normally we hear about it and we hear the finished product but hearing it actually go actually that's mysterious ways and that's yeah. yeah it's really cool if you get a chance to listen to it and you're interested in that i absolutely think you you should listen to it because it 
it's really really interesting to listen to that so you go oh, that's mysterious ways oh hold on that's a bit different oh my god that's a... oh, and then suddenly it's one and it just happens like that in front of you it's crazy and remind us what it's called the list the... it's called sick sick puppy sick puppy uh is the is the, what it was originally called okay. um so bono said it steadied everyone's nerves edge called it the uh pivotal moment and a gift uh daniel lanois said we got take after take plowing through it and we finally got one we were happy with then it got really interesting every overdub that we did seemed to bring something out else with it more fruit to the situation um adam clayton says i think that what was going on at the time took us a long time to come to terms with i can't actually remember what we were coming to terms with but we carried each other through to get to that point um bono said the way through writer's block is about being truthful to write a song about division to write a bittersweet song about disunity so although one has gone on to become this kind of love song Mm. it's actually not really a love song it's a song Mm. about writer's block Mm. it's pretty funny isn't it so many of the great 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 songs um are then later misinterpreted and become you know you discover that they're not that is not what they're about i mean a classic example is the bbc taking uh, lee reed's perfect day and taking yeah. it very literally and like oh isn't this song about having a really nice day and actually <laughs> it's about shooting up heroin <laughs> yeah. you know but um but it could be a nice day hey uh, well uh, don't do no, drugs kids don't uh, do drugs. <laughs> certainly don't do heroin that's one of the bad ones yeah that's one of the worst <laughs> ones um but if you went if you did a load of heroin and went to like the seaside you'd still have a nice day <laughs> i'm sure <laughs> Not a perfect day, though. Probably not well, exactly. a perfect day. Exactly. That's why it's yeah. that's why it's wrong. Yeah. Um, ultimately, though, you two left Hansa Studios with two completed songs, which is a fairly disappointing result for these sessions that were meant to be yielding such uh, such massive results. Um, Daniel Lanois said, we hit on the backbone of one and that provided a lot of impetus to go forward. We went back to Ireland with our tail between our legs because... Uh, not so much has been accomplished, but I think it helped in the end. Uh, Adam Clayton has, des- has described Berlin as a baptism of fire. Uh, it was something we had to go through to realise that what we were looking for and what we were trying to get were not the things that we could find outside of ourselves or in some other city, that there was no magic to it, that we had to put the work in and hone those ideas, which I think, you know, ultimately that is, you know, when we talk about Code Orange and oh, isn't it great and everything, and they, they don't, you know, Jamie was talking about when he we did the interview with Jamie and he was saying, I look at colours and film scenes and stuff. It's like you can watch as many, you know, Gaspar Noir, Gaspar Noé films and film noir and fucking, you know, difficult, challenging stuff and go, I'm going to make my music sound like that. But then you've got to actually go and make your music sound like that. Mm-hmm. So it's lovely to have those inspirations, mm. but it doesn't mean that that inspiration alone is enough to make something great. Yeah, it's like, I mean, you often get people who are just very dismissive of stuff and it's like, oh, well, all they've done is, you know, translated the feelings that one feels watching Gaspar Noé's Enter the Void into a four minute song. I mean, anyone could do that. And it's like, no, you can't, you dumb cunt. Fuck off. Like, you know, that is often a criticism labelled at bands, but the people who make those criticisms are people who don't have any creative juices in their body whatsoever and don't understand the creative process <laughs> in the mm. slightest yeah 
Um, so the band went back to Dublin for Christmas. Uh, they returned to Hansa just after the holiday season finished and sort of realised they had more than they originally thought they had. So they all felt a bit happier. And they moved into a house in uh, Elsinore, a seaside town in Dublin, to finish writing and recording the record. <laughs> Brian Eno turned up and has called many of the tapes from that period a disaster. Uh, he actually spent months stripping away what he felt were endless and unnecessary overdubs to the record. Um, there was a huge team working in two different studios to finish the album that was due for a to be handed in on the 21st of September. And it got done, although that isn't quite where the drama ended, though. Um, in April 1991, the band learned that bootleggers had contained high-quality digital audio tapes from their recording session in Berlin and were sharing and selling copies around the world. Um, many versions of the bootlegs were released over the next year with three and a half hours of unreleased material pressed onto a five LP vinyl called the new U2 rehearsal and full versions. Um, in 1992, some bootleggers actually pressed the same material onto a three CD set named Salom, the Axton BB outtakes. And that was later followed by a seven CD seven plus hour set called the Hansa Ton sessions. Um, the mainstream media picked the story up. Bono called the recordings gobbledygook. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Good word. And said he didn't know why anyone would want to be interested in them. Um, in the end, Ireland Records threatened him with a lawsuit and also threatened any music stores that were caught selling the bootlegs. And uh, law enforcement caught a couple of shops in London and Germany doing that and they got a fine. Um, it was never really clear how or where or when or exactly how these tapes got into the hands of those people. Although it has been suggested that they were stolen from the band's Berlin hotel. Uh, whereas observers in Dublin said they saw band members leaving tapes in their unlocked cars, which is pretty fucking mad. I mean, ironically they didn't learn their lesson. And we mentioned this a little bit in the first part, but pop became the first high profile album to have been leaked online before its release and how to dismantle an atomic bomb apparently got nicked. And they said, if, unless you give us this much money, we're going to release it. And then the band said, well, I'll tell you what, if you release it, we'll just release it on iTunes for free anyway. Something that they did a few years later, regardless. Um, so I, Little suggestion to the members of you two, maybe be a little bit more careful <laughs> with, with your very expensive albums that you are putting out. Because how the fuck does this keep happening to them? Well, I'm gonna, I'm actually gonna defend them ever so slightly um, in terms of the acting baby stuff. I mean, you have to remember this was pre-internet being in everyone's homes, so of course yeah. albums did get nicked and bootlegged and so on and so forth. But the process in order to do that i mean these days if you you get preferably a cd copy of an album because it's far far easier to digitally rip a cd than it is a vinyl um you you convert it to mp3 which these days takes about 30 seconds and then you upload it to the internet it's a process which is i'm not encouraging people to do that by the way but it's a process which is enormously easy to do and um um you know that's very easy uh in terms of this i mean the amount i've got to give the bootleggers credit the amount of the amount that they went through to actually get it out you know putting out a 5 lp version a 7 lp version or 7 cd version i mean it's insane yeah uh, it's quite reminiscent of what happened with the radiohead mini discs hacked thing which happened mm. um 
later on. But then even that, I mean, that whole mini disc era saga hacked thing happened. Uh, oh, God, I can't remember the actual date. But basically, when the Internet was in everyone's homes, we had broadband. Mm. Yada, yada, yada. So so it is actually quite different. And at the time, I mean, if that story about them leaving, just leaving them in their car is true, it's not quite as insane as it sounds, I don't think. It's not quite as mad as it sounds, because obviously that culture of, you know, tape trading was a thing. Obviously, it was a massive thing, but it wasn't certainly wasn't seen as a threat or uh, by the music industry. And it certainly wasn't seen as something that you have to be really, really careful with this stuff, because otherwise people are you know, going to be interested and steal it and try and um, send it on to thousands and thousands of people. That just wasn't something that was on the music industry's radar because it wasn't easy to do that. Yeah, it's prob- that's true. That is true. Um, so there's a minor still- defense. I can't defend how to dismantle an atomic bomb or, I mean, pop a little bit. I could defend 98. Mm. Uh, it was at 97. I mean, yeah, pop mm. I can defend a bit. That would have been the absolute cusp of that beginning to yeah. happen. Well, it and- was the first, pretty much the first, like, yeah. you know, that was, that was the first time that had ever really happened as in, you know, when stuff goes to... Uh, what's it called Napster and yeah. all those places you know that was the sort of first time that that really happened to a, well, Napster, a big band so. Napster didn't form till 99 I don't think so so no that, so it wouldn't have been Napster it but it would have been, been yeah. you know that whole culture of like we've got all the stuff and you can yeah. have it all here it, for free but it would have been something totally it, I probably wouldn't have even been what we consider today like a music a music pirate site or a music sharing site it probably would have just been mm. I don't really know, file sharing of some kind, but I don't yeah. know what it would have been in 98, yeah. Uh So during their time recording at Hansa Studios, Bono bought a pair of sunglasses um, that inspired him to write the song The Fly, uh, which also gave him the impetus to explore the idea of, as you mentioned, Renfrey, the character of The Fly, which would ultimately be crucial for the look and the next sort of stage of U2's career. I think... The look of Acton Baby and the feel of Acton Baby is, is I was going to say, nearly as important as the sound of the record. It's almost more important than the sound of the record in certain ways as to what people's perception of U2 became. Um, this change in image is as extreme, I think, as the one we spoke about with the Manic Street Preachers, except in this case, it's the other way around. Uh, U2 became as colourful and bright and bombastic and outrageous as they were grey and serious and relatable on the Joshua Tree. Anton Corbin again um, photographed the entire period and this is where, when you think of the style of Anton Corbin now, I think it comes into its own here. I mean, basically Metallica would nick this entire acting baby style five years later when they basically pretty much pulled the same trick as you two do on acting baby going from the black album to load um they pulled exactly the same trick they ripped it off wholesale and and they absolutely I, did if there are metallica fans who are screaming at their devices now going no they never ripped anything off of you two i mean a you've not listened to lars ulrich talk around the 90s the mid 90s I mean, you could. There, uh, there is an image. I've got me me deluxe edition of Acton Baby in front of me. There's an image of the band, a black and white image, where Bono's sort of, sort of screaming at the camera, and it is an image which is almost identical 
to one of the images in the load booklet. I mean, I'll try and mm. I'll try and find digital digital copies of each and put them together as a side by side so you can compare the two. It's almost as if Lars Ulrich went up to him at uh, Anton Corbin and said, "Can we recreate that photo you did with you too?" It's really similar. Uh, Lars Ulrich mm. is taking the Bono role, of course, because James Hetfield was like you who probably uh mm. <laughs> but but yeah um it's almost identical it's crazy do you know the one i mean i'm just gonna flash i do know the one you mean yeah quickly. it's that yeah i know exactly the one you mean yeah yeah that one um yeah i mean you could put those side by side you could almost cut that up and swap around and you, you wouldn't know metallica and you too you would be kind of you wouldn't know which band were which. I think you could get away with actually putting the sleeve of Load in the sleeve of Acton Baby or a couple of pictures from Acton Baby in the sleeve of Load. Mm -hmm. And I don't think people would go like, what's that picture of you two? Like, they look exactly the fucking same. And it is a mad, it is a mad, like the dudes in leather waistcoats with long hair and Stetsons becoming guys wearing drag and gold lame suits and leather trousers and like you know well pvc mm. latex leather uh, it's a serious serious change yeah it's massive uh, yes. absolutely massive yeah so um, so, Bono, so colorful like joshua tree is down to earth you can you know you you can you can identify with us man kind of thing to, to an extent mm. whereas um acting baby is we are um we are on a pedestal which you well it could be interpreted as this we are colorful larger than life cartoon characters on a pedestal kind of thing mm. um of course they were you know satirizing a lot of that but that got lost a little bit but yeah yeah i mean there's talk again from the fly where bono said he sort of found this voice for the fly when he put those glasses on and he said getting down there into that guttural place into the gutter i can add a whole new vocabulary to that if i was going to expose my heart i needed the right kind of armor i took Louis's glasses and jim morrison's pants and elvis's jacket and formed a patchwork rock star it was actually incredibly freeing the mask reveals the man um this is the bono that people started to really despise mm. I mean, because I think because they didn't really understand it at all. Rather than yeah. him being kind of calm and contrite and serious and, you know, a little bit more, well, just calmer, there are, there are you know, clips of him uh, saying, I'm learning to lie more. I'm learning to be less authentic and all this kind of stuff. And basically tell people that, you know, uh it's insane it like completely kind of po-faced seriousness you've been saying that we are these megalomaniac rock stars no 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 this is a megalomaniac rock star hmm. you know and adam clayton said we embrace the ludicrousness of it we stop trying to be these earnest po-faced men and it's so weird to me that i mean i probably didn't see it when i was a kid and I loved Rattle and Hum and I, you know, I end up loving war and, you know, loving the unforgettable fire so much. I probably looked at, you know, I, I really loved the songs on Acton Baby, but this is when I started going, oh man, I, I just don't relate. And what I kind of didn't understand was that 
I wasn't supposed to. I was supposed to see it for what it was. Yeah. And obviously without the context of being like, well, you know, these fuckers have been hauled over the coals for, you know, just basically trying to be like normal dudes, mm. normal serious dudes with a, who write music and have a message and, you know, and are sticking up for good things and being, you know, serious and be, treating everyone as sort of sick. You know, it was never excessive rock star behaviour with you two. It no. was just, I think a lot of people were like, look at them in their hats. Boring. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? Uh, uh, I mean, so, cer certainly there were some dubious fashion choices. There were definitely some dubious hair choices. We spoke, spoke yeah. briefly about Live Aid last episode and uh, that mullet on Bono. Oof. Um, but um, yes, I, I think fundamentally most of the critics of this era of U2 looking at the image and the image alone just didn't, the, the fact that it was a satire went totally over their head and they were under the impression that Bono had actually become the fly effectively and had, you know, and his head was jammed so far up his own arse. Um, and they, I think a lot of those people thought, well, this is who Bono is now and mm. um no that's missing the point entirely and it's interesting as well isn't it because i can't really think of anyone else in in massive mainstream music that has done that i mean we get it with alice cooper in rock and marilyn manson and things like that but and i guess and and before that david bowie in uh in ziggy stardust yeah but and then you've got you know shit like that jim morrison being the lizard king and and those kind of things but all the bands that have followed after you two, all these bands that are like so massively influenced by them, Chris Martin's never gone, oh, I've invented this new character. Do you know what I mean? Like Snow Patrol Kings has never gone. Yeah. yeah, or Kings of Leon. Or the, like Brandon Flowers has never gone, oh, actually, um, he's tried to reinvent himself as bloody Bruce Springsteen, isn't he? But, <laughs> you know. But all of those bands, they, to, to, to a T, to, to a man, to each band, are all a lot more boring than you two are. Mm. they all are exactly <clears throat> exactly um i have a very different feeling about the record uh and the look of the record at this point when i can kind of see the kind of inherent ridiculousness of it all um and the and it's quite goading as well like again yeah. like, that was punk rock to fucking goad people yeah to be like no well fuck you i'm not gonna be like i'm not gonna go oh sorry we sold loads of records fuck yeah. off yeah it's very goading it's, it's mm. a very punk rock attitude yeah which again in went, 19... uh, went over most people's heads but it but it is and in in 1991 when nirvana and rave culture were the big thing i mean we said this obviously you never got to hear that podcast where we were talking about zoo tv and we were like and we'll talk about zoo tv in a little bit but it's like well this is not like anything else that's going on yeah the the only thing i'll pick you up on there i know this is the end of 91 and Nevermind came out two months previous. Um, mm. But obviously Nevermind didn't hit big until early 92. But but yeah, I understand what you're saying. I mean, certainly yeah. Nirvana started to hit big not long after this record came out. Well, six weeks or so, really. Because mm. um, it replaced I think Dangerous, didn't it? It did, yeah. January, I mean, I think what's, what's kind of interesting about it is that um you know they they were obviously the, the the kind of berlin 
the kind of Weimar Berlin that kind of cabaret esque feeling is is that's a lot of the you know when you look at like Einzerzende uh, Neubauten if that's how you say it and um, fair play um, for giving Einster, that another go Einzerzende right. Neubauten I'm pretty sure is how you say it and Kraftwerk and KMFDM like they look mental yeah. <laughs> like those yeah, german yeah, yeah, yeah. acts they do look fucking mental and bowie looked really and then you two they just did that on a much 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 bigger scale to be yeah. fair yeah um so anyway let's actually talk finally about the record itself Renfrey. um the album was kind of Unlike um, the Joshua Tree, which the singles came out afterwards, The Fly was released as the, as the first single about a month before the album came out on the uh, 21st of October. It went in number one on the UK singles chart, only reached number 61 in America, which seems pretty mental. Holy um, shit, hit, that's yeah. stunning. Wow. Yeah, hit number one in Ireland and Australia too, but to go from like number one to number 61 if you come back single is a bit like oh god um that's pretty crazy yeah that's that's shocking i didn't know that yeah um i think the fly is one of the best fucking songs just one of the best fucking songs to be perfectly frank about it i think it's fucking amazing you haven't got there yet but i've been looking at this track listing for the hundred minutes or so that we've been recording and i know at one point during this you're going to ask me well you're not anymore because i'm going to spunk it for you but you're going to ask me what's my favorite song on this record and the really difficult thing with this album and i think it's testament to this record it's really hard for me to pick a favorite but Mm. if you put gun to head and said you have to otherwise i'm pulling this trigger i would probably say the fly but to give that a bit of context other other contestants contesters would be zoo station even better than the real thing one who's going to ride your wild horses the fly mysterious waves Uh, acrobat maybe acrobat yeah 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 i mean basically half the record yeah Uh, in in terms of like which is my favorite song it's like oh it's a joint joint first place our six entries fucking good record <laughs> fucking yeah. good record this um yeah Absolutely. but but i think guns ahead i'd probably say the fly is my favorite but it's fucking hard uh yeah i agree flies fucking brilliant fucking yeah. brilliant love it uh bono described the song as a crank call from hell lyrically <laughs> um but the caller likes it there yes <laughs> that, um, that, that it, came into play during zoo tv didn't it yeah it really really did yeah um uh, I I just think that this is such a fucking brilliant song. It's just such a brilliant song. It's got a great. It's got a proper. I mean, again, this is the other thing, right? The, the kind of characterization of the edge as this jingly jangly one note guy. That the fly's got a big riff. Oh fuck yeah! That is a fucking big guitar, and I don't think it's that whole thing that that's where the streets have no name guitar tone that the edge has become synonymous with. I don't really think it there's plenty i mean even better than the real thing's got a proper guitar riff on it i mean until the end of the world as to that that plenty of that signature edge sound is i i would i would say that it is on this record but it is hidden underneath a load of other shit as well uh Mm. i think if you're really listening out for it 
that digital delay thing is there but then it will be covered in a load of other stuff as well to the point where it's almost completely um almost completely different from what how it originally sounded and i think that's kind of the excellence of this record and the brilliance of following up an album that was so huge and managing to do it completely differently uh, and succeed so brilliantly i mean this is a fucking killer record but before we started recording this we both sort of admitted to each other we've listened to a lot of you two over the last three weeks or so a lot i mean i've listened to a lot and i know for a fact you've listened to a lot more than i have um Mm. and we were both a bit like oh it's probably gonna be a little probably gonna park you two for a little bit because we have listened to them a lot i re-listened to acting baby this morning just to have one last kind of listen in on it before going in on this and I don't know if I think I might keep playing Acton Baby fairly regularly. It, it really is. It's just got so many massive, massive, massive songs on it that yeah. you just don't ever get tired of. I think yeah. it's, it's incredible. I mean, the fly, you know, is is big. But like you say, I mean, is the fly the best one? I mean, I think it's just about the heaviest one. Um, it's got bless you. It's okay. got some pretty fucking stiff competition around around it as well i mean it's just everything feels so different on this record as well i mean i guess it's the zoo station i mean let's talk about zoo station for a minute i mean if to go from i was gonna say mothers have disappeared but i guess all i want is you being rattling hum we'll call it that as as the last thing you heard from you two to press play on their new cd as you would have done back then and to hear this clunking, cranking, rollicking sort of mechanical noise just spew out at you for at least sort of 30 seconds before anything else happens. There's no like, you know, there's no foreplay on this record. Mm. It doesn't sort of prepare you for what's going to happen. Mm. It's like Zoo Station basically goes, nah, this is completely different this bears no relation to anything that we've done previously it's it's a new thing well that's exactly what they wanted to do isn't it they wanted to i I mean i read in some places that they wanted people to press play on the new u2 album and begin to wonder if the correct album had been put in Mm. to the sleeve you know um funnily enough biffy clyro did exactly the same thing with infinity land um yeah. they, they they start off with glycerin trauma where it's this kind of like electronic almost drum and bassy thing and they wanted you to press play on the record and go is this actually the new biffy clyro record has there been a mistake at the processing plant and they've actually put like ministry of sound trance beats seven onto my infinity land cd instead <laughs> yeah, you know. yeah, yeah but that's um really that was a move that was aping you too I imagine. I mean, I would have thought that mm. Simon Neal knew exactly who he was aping when he did that. I would have thought, you know. I would have thought so. Yeah. 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 So. I mean, it's. I. I. I mean, I. I love Zoo Station, and it's probably it's that is probably, I guess, the most industrial sounding song on the record as well, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I reckon. Um, yeah. Uh, so Zoo Station is a massive sort of opener to the record it's so great apparently apparently it's um something happened in berlin during the second world war where a load of zoo animals escaped during a bombing 
and just went oh. running rampage around Berlin, which is what the song's about, apparently. Oh, right. Um, oh, that makes it even better. <laughs> That's fucking yeah, yeah. wicked. Cool. Um, okay. We spoke about the opening three tracks of Joshua Tree mm. and how basically <laughs> it is the biggest sort of like the, the most Hollywood opening to a record ever, almost. Um, I don't think the Joshua Tree is as, you know, kind of blockbuster big as the Joshua Tree. But in terms of the quality of the first three songs, Zoo Station, even better than The Real Thing, one. Completely, completely agree. Uh, yes, uh, I don't think the first three songs on here are as well known as the first three songs on the Joshua Tree, but in terms of quality, they are um, they they are all as good as their equivalents. Very interesting them putting one as track three, uh, bearing in mind with or without you as track three on Joshua Tree, because those two yeah. songs are a very if you want a very very truncated difference between the two U two albums you could just listen to with or without you and then listen to one and see their approach to third track balladry and see how that's changed and progressed. And I think you would get, you certainly wouldn't get the whole picture at all, but it would give you an, a, 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 an idea in sort of eight, nine minutes of the differences between these records. I think what's the better one of the two, do you think? Because I've got to be honest with you, right? When we went into this, a bit like With or Without You, One was a song where I was like, oh, I don't really want to listen to One ever again. I mean, particularly I don't because of like bloody people on X Factor and Mary J. Blige covering it. And I'm like, nah, not for me. And it's become, again, it's such a massive omnipresent song. And it was one of those ones that I had in the, you know what? I don't think I ever need to listen to that song ever again. In the context of the records... It's fucking great. Mm -hmm. It is brilliant. I, I mean, with or without you has been one of those ones where I, like, I might put with or without you on on its own. Yes. Um, even though it's that great, I'm not sure that I feel quite that strongly about one. To be perfectly honest, but I do think it is brilliant. And it used. I mean, when I first heard this record, it it it's such a. I never really used to like slow songs, and I never really used to like ballads. This will surprise you about me, Renfrey. I'm stunned. Um, <laughs> yeah but it's here in what i think one was probably the first type of that song that i remember actually being like god this is really good and then that became fake plastic trees and you know small black flowers that grow in the sky or even black hole sun i guess mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um and i was like yeah actually those songs can be good um but i never i never like ballads and but i i do like one i think one is fucking great I think broadly I would agree with you with or without you as a song that I would and have listened to several times actually out of context of the record and love and enjoy one I don't think is as a, is as powerful without the songs around it um that said it's still fucking powerful um yeah I would also say that one what so another another quick that I'm I might have hinted at this but i'm not sure if i've actually said it aloud on this um i didn't actually own this album uh until before we started doing this when you said you wanted to do it i owned a copy of joshua tree but i'd never actually picked up acting baby and so i bought it um and also realized that i whilst i recognized 
god 75 percent of it um i hadn't actually ever sat down and listened to the accent uh, to accent baby before we did this really? so I, oh. mm, so i'm actually coming at this from i mean the first time i heard accent baby in full was probably only a month ago really if wow. in terms of sitting down and just listening to the whole thing so i'm coming to this really really new in in some respects and one was one of those songs that i was a bit like do i ever need to hear it again i mean really i'm just repeating what you said but i'm saying it because yes i fully agree with you the moment one came on i was like this is fucking brilliant isn't it this song is fucking brilliant i feel like it's one of those songs that when i think about it without listening to it i'm like oh yeah it's that omnipresent song which you've heard a billion fucking times but when it's actually on it's just like well there's a reason why this is considered one of the best songs of all time isn't it isn't there you know there's a damn good reason and it's fucking great if push came to shove I think I'd probably say I prefer with or without you. But that is very strongly me going, I prefer with or without you. I don't think with or without you is better necessarily. I don't think one's better either. I just think they're both. They they wrote two absolutely classic all-time ballad belters, one yeah. after the other, uh, and mm. placed them as track three on their record. And they are... They really genuinely choosing between the two is enormously difficult. Again, gun to head, probably with or without you, but it's I wouldn't want to be without I, either of them, really. Do you know what makes it really hard, I think, is the um is the, the ask me to enter and then you, that whole bit where it you go, This is a nice song and this is good and God actually it is really good. And then you kind of go, Yeah, 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 yeah. And then when it gets to the um the kind of cracked voice Bono gets when he gets up. That bit is just is. fucking absolutely incredible. And if you're listening to this and you're like going, still going, they still going on about like you two and this song that I've heard a million times before. You fucking liar. You liar <laughs> that you don't like this song. I don't believe that you don't like If you, okay, fair enough. You might not like, you might just not like ballads. That's fine. But let's not pretend this is anything other than an absolutely fucking stellar, phenomenal piece of songwriting. Because it just is. Yeah, 100%. Like My my Way by Frank Sinatra is just great. And it doesn't matter. I don't care what you like. Yeah. I don't care that you're the most metal person in the world and that you only listen to carcass demos. My way is good, and you're stupid if you don't think it is. Like, sorry. yeah so one is it's it's undeniable and yes i totally agree with you if you if you listen to one and you don't see any merit in it at all then you probably shouldn't be listening to music i think like what is great about this is it hit like this this album and this first three well why i think why i think that arguably quality wise this is a better opening to the album than the joshua tree is because it starts with such a bizarre weird into zoo station which is a you know a a, just an odd song a great song but an odd song to even better than the real thing which is Mm. a much more typically a much more typically rocky sounding song Mm -hmm. but again a pretty weird song like a weird sort of um like it's got bells and whistles and horns and shit all over it. And it's got like syncopated drum loops and yep. 
but I'm and a massive chorus. So you've gone from fucking weird to like weird, but I can see this as a big song to a ballad. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the progression is great. And it doesn't really stop there, the progression, because then you go to Until the End of the World, which is, I, I think is a fucking fantastic song. Mm-hmm. I really love that. And then to Who's Gonna Wild Your Ride Horses, which again is something else again it's five for um, five so far as well it's isn't it five for five <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean spoiler really alert is. spoiler alert it's 12 for 12 but you know it is five yeah. for five um yeah i mean uh, i don't really know where to go next so you've got even better than the real things uh, until the end of the world is what's cool about until uh until the end of the world because i always struggle to sort of sum up what's so cool about it oh are you asking me i am asking you oh, yeah fucking hell Uh, you're basically I, I, asking me to describe the record, which is really fucking hard to do. Uh, okay, so let let me try then. If you if you're struggling with yeah, it straight yeah, away, yeah. until the end of the world is brilliant, and I never knew why it's brilliant. I suppose it's because it's like a mixture of kind of indie rock or kind of gothy indie rock, Tom Waitsy lounge music, and industrial. Like, I, but quite light sounding industrial like electronica and it's quite it's one of the more playful moments on the record i think um it's a fucking it's a brilliant song and you know lyrically it's it's really great as well i mean uh there's people in this um that uh that, that you don't think we're going to be mentioning when we're doing a youtube podcast and i suppose fear factory and sepultura were a couple bring me the horizons another one um in my dreams i was drowning my sorrows but my sorrows they learnt to swim now that's kind of wholesale been ripped off by ollie sykes in the i can't d- drown my demons they know how to swim on sempaternal the opening song can you feel my heart so I don't know if Ollie Sykes has ever listened to Actum Baby. It doesn't strike me as the sort of person that would spend much time listening to albums like this, but you never you know. know. You never know. But but uh yeah, there's a little bit of Bring Me the Horizon in there in it as well. I think an awful lot of people would dismiss, you know, they'd be like, Oh well Metallica don't listen to you two, do they? And well, maybe all four of them don't, but certainly you know, I think Hammett and uh Ulrich almost certainly did. You know, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the interesting thing with "Until the End of the World" is it doesn't really have a chorus. Mm. <laughs> the guitar part is the chorus. Isn't yeah, it? the guitar part is the chorus. You know, which is uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, that's a better way to put it. It has an unconventional chorus, um, and um, yeah, again, just an, another example of like a band willing to fuck with the formula, experiment, do things that, um, in reality, are actually quite odd but then somehow managed to package them up in cotton wool in a way which is easily accessible and that you can actually enjoy. And and that can feel like a, a quote unquote pop song if you want. Mm-hmm. It's just until the end of the world is a brilliant example of them doing that. I mean, I think all 12 of these tracks are a brilliant example of them doing that more or less, mm. but yeah. Uh, I mean, I didn't name until the end of the world as one of my, you know, contenders for the number one spot on this record it doesn't mean that i don't like it i think it's a fucking great song i mean yeah Mm. that's gonna be a running theme but yeah Yeah. um it's fucking excellent yeah who's gonna ride your wild horses is also fucking excellent yep 
Uh, another that one. A, that is a great song. Another one, to be honest with you, that um, a bit like one, I'm like, not to the same extent, but do I need to hear it again? I've heard it a lot over the years, heard a lot of people cover it, yada, yada, yada. But um, listening to it, especially in context of the record, yes, I do need to hear it again. It's fucking great. Mm. Uh, it's just a I wonderful think, I think song. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah it's so good. i mean we could just say that about pretty much all of them but i think yeah. a few like we should mention mysterious ways as that was one of the big big singles um yep. proper like wah wah guitar yes uh, i love that wah wah, wah guitar and something that mm. I don't think the edge had really played with in the past. I don't believe. I mean, you might be able no. to pick up something, but I don't think he'd played no, with much. Not more. really, no. Um, and an, the the best bass line on the record, mm. pretty much. Mm-hmm. I would say maybe the best the best bass line of the nineties. Um, <sighs> fucking Ooh. fucking great. Um, and then you get stuff like towards the end the the record. Like I was always as a kid, I was like, oh, I love it up to mysterious ways. And then it's sort of teeters off a little bit but that's because it becomes a bit more um a bit slower a bit more slight uh, i mean trying to throw your arms around the world it's got a touch of pre bristol and bristolian trip hop pause eddie vibes to it isn't it it's not a, a billion miles away from that sort of thing um it's never never considered think, that but yeah i can see what you mean yeah i think ultraviolet light my way is another really really excellent balladic you know kind of anthemic ballad moment um they baby baby baby, I saw... baby 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 like my way mm. that um, Acrobat, they played that they played that live uh when i saw them a few years ago and i just Did had they? no idea they were going to be playing that and cool it was so great i was just like you know when you go and see a band and especially a band who've got like loads and loads of albums and you just don't think for a second that they're going to play like an album track from an album that came out 20 years ago. Uh, Well, um, and they just chucked it in taking this very, 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 very literally. It would sort of be like watching Metallica and seeing them play my friend of just chuck my friend of misery into the set. Wouldn't it? Yeah. Which is something that bar the black album in full shows they just don't do <laughs> they don't play or that ronnie, or ronnie yeah I, I specifically chose my friend of misery because it's track 11 on their 1991 mm. album but and acrobats track 11 on the 91 album but yeah ronnie i mean i don't need to hear ronnie uh my friend of misery <laughs> my friend like of misery ronnie. is actually a brilliant song like mm. one of the most underrated songs on black album i would say um but you know yeah it's a bit like bit like that you like ronnie do you yeah Come Some on. greedy with Ruddy came to this town. <laughs> don't you dare ask how I came to wear this crown. <laughs> and we all know why the children can't him Ronnie, call him Ronnie Frown <laughs> when he pulled that gun from, from his pocket. His pocket. And, and they all fall down, 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 down. Anyway, <laughs> we'll do Metallica one day, guys. We'll, we'll, do, we'll, something do, about we'll do loads. We'll do loads one day. Yeah, for sure. Um, Love is Blindness, again, is a fucking unbelievable album closer, mm. I yep. think. Yep. Beautiful, beautiful. Um, and, and again, you know, what was it Daniel Lanois said, the heart, you know, kind of flesh and machine. And this is the flesh, isn't it? This is the kind of heart of the record, that mm. part. You know, it doesn't really need a lot of bells and whistles around it. No. It's just a kind of a beautiful song. Yes, um, I mean I, that flesh and machine uh, uh, point is an interesting one. I suppose in many many ways you can kind of, I mean you know one is a flesh song, 
Lovers Blindness is a Flesh song. I don't know if it's... The Fly is a Machine song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? The I mean, Station is a, machine, a machine song. song. Yeah. yeah, you can sort of split it up like that broadly. I think quite a few of these songs do have both. Um, but yep, yeah, you, you, you can... You can very broadly split that record maybe much in the same way that you can split up um joshua tree with uh, european and american uh influences <laughs> and examples and roots mm. music you know. yeah i think the split would be far more um far more uh the portion sizes would be much bigger on the joshua tree i think yeah than they are on, on, like in one side than to the other oh yeah um but yeah that's you know it would be uh anyway so there you go um this is a really brilliant album everything on it's brilliant i think we've pretty much mentioned we haven't mentioned so cruel so cruel's really good yep. so cruel's probably my least favorite on the album to be honest oh, okay it's still it's still really good um what's your favorite so, song on the record oh fucking hell yeah fucking hell uh, oh, i don't know maybe the fly yeah maybe the fly you know the fly is so great it's the first single and it is just so great mysterious ways is brilliant i think that one too of the fly mysterious ways mm -hmm. is just like fucking as good as anything gets mm -hmm. um yeah but i do like all of them um so the album came out the 18th of november in the uk and the 19th of november in the us uh it hit number one in the us number two in the uk didn't actually get to number one in the United Kingdom. That's I mad, know. right? Yeah. Uh, it yeah. also hit the top spot in Australia, Canada, Holland, and France. It's gone on to sell more than 18 million copies worldwide. It's gone eight times platinum in the United States. That's eight million copies. Four times platinum in the UK. That's 1.2 million copies. Diamond in Canada, one million copies. Five times platinum in Australia and New Zealand. Two times platinum in Denmark and France. Platinum in Argentina, Austria, Germany, Holland, Norway, Spain, and Sweden. Um, Rolling Stone gave it a 9 out of 10 and said that U2 had proven that the same penchant for epic musical and verbal gestures that leads many artists to self-parody can, in more inspired hands, fuel the unforgettable fire that defines great rock and roll. Entertainment Weekly gave it an A and called it a pristinely produced and surprisingly unpretentious return by one of the most impressive bands in the world. Q gave it five out of five and called it the band's heaviest album so far. The Guardian said it was quite an achievement in following up a successful record, responding to emerging musical influences and expanding the band's sound while still pleasing existing fans. Um, Spin were fairly lukewarm on the record, but kind of grudgingly said, give the band credit for trying to broaden their palette, um, which is quite ironic because in 2010 they then named it the most influential album of the past 25 years okay. uh they said unlike radiohead with okay computer and kid a you two took the post-industrial trad rock disillusionment not as a symbol of overall culture and relays but as a challenge to buck up and transcend shrugging uh, struggling to simultaneously embrace and blow up the world they were never more inspirational um <laughs> robert christigu didn't review it at the time because he didn't consider it worthy of a review <laughs> we love robert christigu we love robert christigu but he did do a retrospective review a few years later uh where he said after many many tries act and baby still sounds like a damnly diffused u2 album to me and i put it in the hall unable to describe a single song oh that's their fault isn't it it's their fault that you can't describe their music <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, but he's saying he's saying that like it's a negative as well. Like I think yeah. both of us would see that as a positive thing. Um, yeah. But I mean, Jesus, he's on a different fucking planet, isn't he? What a the guy is a, a loon, an absolute <laughs> bloody loon. Let's not waste any That's more time. Incredibly about him. polite of you, I think. But yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, it was ranked at number 36 in Colin Larkin's all-time top 1,000 book, uh, 1,000 albums book in 2002. Uh, USA Today featured it in their list of the top 40 albums ever made in 2003. It was ranked 21st in Hot Press's list of the best albums ever in 2006. VH1 ranked it 65th on their greatest 100 albums ever in the series they did. And Rolling Stone placed it 63rd on its list of the 500 greatest albums ever in 2012. Um, slightly below the Joshua Tree in every respect. Yeah. Um, other than kind of critical consensus, I think, which apart from Robert Christigou, uh, everyone pretty much raved about it at the time. Do you know what, though? That's not particularly surprising, is it? Because the Joshua Tree no. is a far easier album to get than this one is. Not that this is difficult, mm. I don't think. I think, actually, part of the genius of it is they put relatively, uh, I'm not going to say complex, but unconventional song ideas front and centre. Yeah. Um, and, as I said before, sort of wrap them up in a commercial cotton wool, if you will. will. Mm. And I think that's part of the genius of this record. But, um, yeah, I, I, like, I don't find, I don't agree but at the same time, I don't find it surprising, if that makes sense. Mm, mm. So, you know, but ultimately, still, again, 18 million records sold yeah. of a single album is pretty fucking impressive. That'll so, do, um, That'll do. Yeah, we should talk about Zoo TV. So the band went out and toured this album, obviously. The Edge has said, Zoo TV was our reward for years of restraint. <laughs> Which I think is... Uh, An interesting way to put it is an interesting way to put it. So they went out on tour to promote the album uh, in what they called a sensory overload of a show. Uh, far from being the sort of unsure band of the Rattle and Hum era, not knowing how to play stadiums, they brought what might be, I think, the most ambitious stage set that had ever been constructed by anyone at that point. We spoke about the wall tour, which probably is the most... Um, certainly the most ambitious the ideas of bringing a venue around the world but the wall did a handful of shows yes that wall, that wall tour whereas you two took zoo tv all around the world yes um uh an actual tv station that bono could control from the stage all being filled with you know tv channels being filled with slogans like a kind of manic street preachers diary um loads of the burnt out cars like i said the ones i saw in berlin um an opening um video with george bush senior going we will we will rock you we yeah, will yeah. we which i thought was quite funny um and support from check out the people that are supporting them pj harvey the pixies utah saints primus big audio dynamite and i think most excitingly of all public enemy fuck that's wicked <laughs> that's fucking wicked isn't it? i was on board when they you also, said pj harvey <laughs> That's awesome. I know. PJ Harvey I know. on, I mean, on uh, Dry as well, I'm yeah. assuming. Yeah. yeah. I mean, they would then go on to um, to uh, uh, take out Rage Against the Machine on the Pop Mart tour in 1998. Did they? That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know. 
I didn't pretty know fucking that. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. What mm. era was Although that? Although annoyingly on the You what? What era was that? What year? Do you know? Pop. It was on 97. Pop. Pop Mart. 97, 98, yeah. Fuck. So they took them out on Evil Empire, basically. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I had no idea. That's blown my mind. Yeah. Yeah, it's fucking great. Um, they also uh, had Oasis as a support band. I oh. mean, Oasis, the biggest band in the world in 1997, but supporting another band. So you're not the biggest band then, are you? <laughs> if although, you're, if you're although, supporting someone, you're not the biggest band in the world. We should point out, just, just something you, you didn't point out in the um, Joshua Tree, you said that it was the fastest selling record um uh in a, in a week or two weeks at that time uh it was mm. and, and it held that record until be here now came out um, yes that's right mm-hmm. that's i think that's the fastest selling record in the uk surely because yeah be here now. that's what i said in the U- it, it was in the uk yeah. um but still even though they had the fastest selling record <clears throat> they were still supporting you too well, there you go in ireland as well it's not even like they were supporting them in like the far flung parts of the world yeah. they were supporting them up the road biggest band in the world my dick yeah um <laughs> annoyingly on pop mart i mean we don't have to talk about pop mart too much but annoyingly on pop mart in in the uk they took audio web out as their support us got fucking radiance machine the uk got audio web give me a fucking break who Unbelievable. the fuck are audio web i've never heard of them. audio audio web were basically a kind of electro brit pop band who covered um bank robber by the their big hit was bank robber by the clash a kind of reggae up blank version of Bank Robber the Clash. They, I they just, were not good. I just rolled my eyes for the benefit of everyone yeah. listening. <laughs> okay. They were not good. So um, I didn't know this, but the inspiration for Zoo TV was the band got into pirate radio. Um, and also while they were recording at Hansa Studios in Berlin, there was only one TV channel they could watch that was in English. And that was a news channel that was covering the Gulf War at that time. Right. So they wanted to kind of, do a pirate TV station inspired by this new rolling 24-hour news channel, which they saw as being like absolute bollocks. Um, Well, which has become a de facto way that we take news in these days, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Um, I watched the first version of Zoo TV that they did as a broadcast in New York, which they actually took over. I don't know what TV channel it was, but they 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 broadcast what they kind of said it's, oh, it's u2 zoo tv broadcast right and they did it live have you seen this it's on youtube i don't think i, I don't know if you've seen this right so some of it is incredible mm. right and it is such a massive sensory overload uh, and some of it is just so pretentious it's unbelievable so they've got the band playing and they show the kind of opening and then halfway through a song it will cut to like a an on the floor reporter who has stood behind like edge's amp and he's got i'm here outside edge's amp and i got his guitars here and i'm watching you can see the band playing behind me and then he's like going this is where all the things happen and it's cost this much money and it's this that and then it cuts back back to you in the studio and then it cuts back to these people in the studio who are obviously like actors or whatever and then it cuts to like a shopping channel and then it cuts back to the band but it, it cuts back to the band live so they've been playing this whole time now it's a really stop start and it's really weird and it's kind of very much like oliver stone's natural born killers Mm. um which it can work for a film if you're trying to kind of construct some narrative but if i'm in the middle of listening to the fly 
and suddenly it cuts to some bloke to a selling channel. a fake, <laughs> selling a fake orange juice on a fake shopping channel network. Yeah, and then it cuts back and the song's nearly over. It's a bit rough. I mean, it's very code orange. Mm-hmm. Well, but do you know what it is? It's very Radiohead. Very Radiohead. I don't know why I said it in mm. that manner. Uh, Radiohead did their own version of this, uh, Dead Airspace, I think it was called, where they basically had radiohead.tv i think that was the website um uh and it was exactly what it says on the tin radiohead tv i don't think it was exactly the same kind of thing um but it was i mean i'm not sure if you'd have dead air space without zoo tv Mm. probably Mm. yeah broadly the idea was probably ripped off of you too I would have thought every everybody's had a go at this sort of thing now, especially with the rise of multimedia from the amount of TV channels, cable TV, the internet, social media. Everybody's had their own little go at it, but you two yeah. were the first people to do it. They, they probably definitely were. were. Yeah. There's no getting away from it. They definitely were. Um, they used to start every show with the song "Television: The Drug of the Nation" by the hip hop artist, the Disposable Heroes of Hip Hop hip hop um before the lights went off uh, the band believed that the song which was a commentary on sort of mass media culture encapsulated the tour's principal themes um it was a pretty fucking incredible spectacle at the very least i mean stuff like on the 11th of june 1992 benny anderson and bjorn urveas of abba appeared on stage in stockholm for the first time in five years to perform dancing queen with the band um which you two had been performing uh, on the tour uh, other guest performers on the tour included mm. axel rose yeah axel rose um For ride, i ride, wish ride these wild horses wasn't it yeah, yeah. and um i wish that axel rose axel rose quite a difficult man to to sort of pin down <laughs> but not them but not the most difficult man to pin down as salman rushdie actually joined the band on stage uh, at Wembley Stadium on the 11th of August 1993, despite the fatwa that he had on his head at the time. Now, I don't know if any of you remember Salman Rushdie, but Salman Rushdie basically um, wrote a novel called The Satanic Verses. Uh, great novel by the way uh, it's a fantastic book i've read it is it it's okay really i don't i don't really know anything about it i mag- don't magic really understand rea- what was going on at the time. magic realism kind of thing um very heavily misinterpreted <laughs> hence the fatwa but yeah mm. <clears throat> so it was basically like Simon Rushdie was gonna get killed yeah he had to he had to go he went outside yeah he had to go into hiding for years years and years and years years and years and years yeah um so but bono (laughs) like used to call him up because he's doing the calling thing which we'll talk about in a minute Mm. um uh, in a reference to the novel's satanic references rushdie when confronted by bono's mcfesto character revealed that um observed that real devils don't wear horns in uh, 2010 adam clayton remembered that bono had been calling salman rushdie from the stage every night on the ztv tour when we played wembley salman rushdie showed up in person and the stadium erupted you could tell from larry's face that we weren't expecting it salman was a regular visitor after that he had a backstage pass and he used it as often as possible for a man who was supposed to be in hiding it was remarkably easy to see him around the place it's insane it's insane the guy was literally risking his life to go to a u2 gig just to hang out backstage it's I mean, fucking mate, insane let, 
Salman Rushdie really like, likes you too. Clearly. He does, mate. I, <laughs> I like fucking I will follow as much as the next guy, but not that much. I say, <laughs> just, I mean? I say just walk away, walk away, walk away, walk away, Salman Rushdie, because, you know, your life's on the line. Uh, you're not happy with that? Yeah, that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose it's all right. <laughs> Come on. Um, we mentioned McFesto. I think we got to talk about McFesto. Ah, uh, McFesto. Um, uh. Bono's, Bono's other alter ego. There was Mirable Man uh, on this tour. He did The Fly, obviously, which was... He never really was Bono on this tour. He did The Fly. He did something called Mirable Man, which was a kind of like a preacher in a Stetson. Um, and then he had his most famous one, which was McFesto, which is basically him doing a sort of posh English accent while he's dressed up as the devil in a gold lame suit. And this is where shit, when I was a kid, got really fucking draining for me. So um, <laughs> this is uh, McFesto was created to parody the devil and was named after Mistopheles of the Faust legend. Initially, he was called Mr. Gold because McFesto wore a gold lame suit with gold platform shoes, pale makeup, lipstick and devil horns on his head. As McFesto, Bono spoke with an exaggerated upper class English accent similar to that of his of this uh, down on his luck character actor. The character was created as a European replacement for the American influence Mirable Man, who I just mentioned. Um, the initial inspiration for McFesto came from a character in the stage musical The Black Rider, um, a performance of which Bono and the Edge attended in January 1993. The McFesto character was realised during rehearsal the night before U2's first 1993 show. According to Bono, he said, um, we came up with a sort of old English devil, a pop star long past his prime, returning regularly from sessions on the strip in Vegas and regaling anyone who would listen to him at cocktail hour with stories from the good old bad old days. McFisto sang the closing Can't Help Falling in Love in an oddly childlike manner that many reviewers found one of the most poignant moments of the show. Fuck me. Good idea that I wasn't... <laughs> lucky that I wasn't reviewing back then. Um, <laughs> as McFesto, Bono continued his routine of making in-concert prank calls that had begun when he was doing Mirable Man. Uh, he used to change his targets based on the location of where they were playing mm-hmm. um many of them were kind of local politicians who bono would want to mock by engaging them as this kind of devil character uh, among his targets were the archbishop of canterbury helmut cole benedict hench the pope <laughs> alessandra mussolini hans janmat bernard tappy um Bernard Tappy, by the way, um, I, I I know some of these, but Bernard Tappy was the disgraced owner of Marseille Football Club, um, right. who basically bought, um, kind of bought the referee the, just before they played a European Cup final. He bribed the referee to oh. go easy on Marseille, um, uh, and they lost anyway. Yeah, they, they lost anyway. Um, me. <laughs> yeah, uh, John Gummer and Jan Henry T. Olsen. Uh, Bono enjoyed making these calls so much that uh, he said, when you're dressed as the devil, your conversation is immediately loaded. So if you tell somebody that you really like what they're doing, you know it's not quite a compliment. Um, this was sort of intended to add humour. <gasps> Uh, whilst also making a point the edge said the character is a great device for saying the opposite of what you meant it made the point so easy and with real humor um there was a female fan in cardiff who was pulled on stage and she questioned bono's motives for dressing like the devil uh, prompting the singer to compare his act to the plot of the c.s lewis novel the screw tape letters do you know 
the screw tape letters? I don't. I don't. No, I'm not a big C.S. Lewis fan. He's all preachy about Jeebus and stuff, isn't he? Oh, is he in bloody hell? Um, well, uh, well, as, as, tape... Aslan in the Chronicles of Narnia is meant to be Jeebus. Yeah, I knew that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 It's all fine, um, in the Screw Tape Letters, he imagines a series of lessons in the importance of taking a deliberate role in the Christian faith by portraying a typical human life with all its temptations and failings seen from the devil's viewpoints. That's what it's about. So, um, yeah. Uh, Screwpoint holds an administrative post in the bureau- bureaucracy of lowerarchy of hell and acts as a mentor to his nephew Wormwood, an inexperienced and incompetent tempter. Um, yeah, that's what the book's about. And a few years later, in the animated video to the single Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me, where you two... Oh, love it. Love it. Peak mentalness. Bono's hit by a car in that and he's actually walking along and he falls down and you see the novel... Uh, that's what he's reading in yeah. the novel. It's also um, I've done as a cartoon comic strip type thing, but yes, yeah. yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm at, um, I, you know what? I, I apologize. I know we're going off topic, but I saw that video when I was 11, 96. Yeah. 95, 96, 10, 11. And I, I was a big Batman fan. I was really excited about Batman Forever coming out. I was exactly the right age, 10 years old, because Batman Forever sort of, it was the first Joel Schumacher one and uh, took a bit more of a sort of a younger kind of view of it, made it a bit more cartoony, a bit more outrageous. Um, I mean, certainly I adored Batman Forever in the cinema. I think by the time it came out on VHS, I was kind of over it. But um, yeah, I remember that period so... I mean, Hold Me Through and We Kiss Me Kill Me is probably the first U2 song I ever heard and loved is it? if i'm on it yeah probably yeah. yeah it's good i really like it i listened back to it i'd forgotten about it and then they did it's it on the 360 song. degrees tour and i found a oh. clip of it from buenos Aires, and i was like oh yeah that's good because they started playing it well they played a sort of remix version of it um which was actually remixed by um fucking hell what's the dude's name um the what is the dude's name hold on give me two seconds he is the dude that covered the fly gavin friday it's gavin friday oh. and one of one of arcade fire did a right. remix of it which they played in the sort of um that last tour that i went on you know where metallica do the like get <laughs> to give lars and james a bit of a breather they let kirk and rob just jam well oh. you two got people to remix one of their old songs and had this amazing like cartoon wall while it played and they had a bit of a breather and then they come out dressed differently and i think slightly better to be honest i, um, I take you two doing that over rob and kirk doing the bullshit that they do fucking hell <laughs> um really crap, yeah. really crap man. Yeah. um but uh, just as a sort of an aside on uh, Hold Me, Thrill Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. Um, yeah, the uh, the the reason that song was a song, because it actually was written during the Action Baby Stroke Zero Possessions. Was it? And Joel Schumacher, having seen McFesto, wanted, bon- wanted McFesto to be in Batman Forever. He was going to have a cameo in Batman Forever. That you know, given the sort of colourful nature of that film, that makes a lot of sense. Actually, that I think that would yeah. have, actually have. It's not a film I love these days, but I think that would have actually slotted in quite nicely. Funnily mm. enough, um, mm. but it didn't happen. No, um, yeah. I wanted to make the point with this McFesto stuff. These days, these days, we have the internet. We have uh, everyone has a camera on their phone. You know, um, keeping secrets. Um, 
is a very tough thing to do. The moment you play a show, shit tons of people are going to record it unless there are very, very, very stringent no phones rules. But those are very, very difficult to reinforce. And footage of it is going to be all over the Internet probably hour just an hour or so after the concert is finished um but of course during this time if you that didn't exist and if you can imagine your mate coming up to you and being like yeah and then there was this point in the show where bono comes out in this gold sort of suit with devil horns on and then he, and then he prank called well in one the case pope. the pope yeah, the pope and starts like teasing him and stuff like that like your mates would be like what are you fucking on like how did that mm. no that didn't happen and it is the kind yeah. of thing i actually remember when we saw this together and did this sort of commentary thing which probably we'll never see the light of day i do remember i hadn't seen this before i i knew about it and i'd heard about it but i hadn't seen the whole uh Mephisto, Mephisto stuff mephisto thank you um hadn't seen any of that stuff and just watching it it was kind of like jaw on the floor like i can't believe they did this that's i mean i'm i'm, I'm not strictly saying it was a good thing that they did it because it was odd <laughs> to say the least but it is really the kind odd. of the it, it is the kind of thing that you kind of have to watch before you can believe that it really happened but obviously mm. you, you can do that now um but yeah what odd um are you, you're going to talk about him calling the president as well i'm assuming yeah at one point yeah yeah well i mean we've got we've got the video of zoo tv i mean i bought that so here basically zoo tv live in sydney was the thing that massively put me off you two having gone off and bought all of their albums and i've bought like even you know zeropa which we'll talk about in a second that's uh which i thought was really good and i was happy with all the kind of music and blah 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 and i had rattle and hum and i've been so sort of seduced by the sparseness and the honesty of rattle and hum um that seeing zoo tv and i thought you know especially at this point when i'm getting more into grunge and stuff this kind of surface level bullshit and caricatures and blah 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 and i just didn't like it but looking at it now as a reaction i actually quite like it i think it's weird as fuck yes. to see songs like new year's day or with or without you being played by this band though but i'll tell you what it's a damn sight better than pop mart which i might mention a little bit which i did mm. watch as well mm. um but yeah we watched it together and it's so weird because they just, you know, they embrace the actor and baby stuff. The show starts with six songs from actor and baby. It does. Yeah. yeah. Back to back pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And you just think, well, that's your brand new album. And the album that you were touring before that is one of the biggest albums ever. And you've not even, you know, it takes them a while before they even touch anything from the Joshua tree. True. But then yep. the stuff when they do do it, within the context of them then it almost doesn't really work does it mm. yeah no I, it, I think you're right you know seeing with or without you when he was dressed like he was dressed as a cop wasn't he, he was just sort of like riot police yeah yeah it's weird <laughs> it's really weird <laughs> and weird. um and then yeah and the, you know the one we watched he gets on at mcfesto and he starts he phones the australian president doesn't he mm -hmm. the australian prime minister yeah, yeah and it doesn't really work because you can't really hear what the guy's saying back because everyone's shouting over the top of it there's like a hundred thousand people there in yeah. the stadium yeah. <laughs> and it's it's just all a bit like you know i now kind of look at the theater of it and go like fair play to them they really went there you know 
Acton Baby and this whole period is about not holding back at all. It's the same thing as, you know, Larry Mullen was like, well, no, no, if we make an album that's inspired by Cream and Jimi Hendrix, that's a bit of a progression, right? And they're like, no. <laughs> not enough. Yeah, no, yeah. not enough. And that's what this is, you know. Oh, before we had a red spotlight. Now we have cars hanging from the ceiling, our own TV channel, and we're prank calling the Pope. If you think about the transition of the band, of the live band from Rattle and Hum era to Zoo TV era, a period of only four or five, maybe six years, four or five, really. Not uh, even that. It's, a diff- it's about three years. Yeah, it's a, diff- it's a different band. They're a different band. And I think loads of people took that as an inspiration. Radiohead are a band who um, I've seen multiple times. And every single time I see them, it feels like I'm watching a different band. Nine Inch Nails are particularly good at it. Um, I feel Mm -hmm. like every time I see Nine Inch Nails, I feel like I'm watching a totally different band in many ways. I've seen Nine Inch Nails where Trent's just been on the warpath and is just smashing everything. I've seen Nine Inch Nails when they've done quite... I mean, their quote-unquote last ever UK show at Sonosphere was (laughs) quite infamously very, very low-key and they they barely played any of the hits. Um, And, I mean, I thought it was amazing, but a lot of people... You must have been there. I'm assuming you were there. I did. I was doing. I was actually doing um, Edinburgh that year. Sorry. Oh, okay. oh, um, it was it was wicked, but it was not a, you know, <laughs> last ever show. You'd expect them to just come out with closer wish, um, fucking just all the big hitters, March of the Pigs, and they didn't do that at all. Like they just played like I think they had an hour, and 50 minutes was just a lot of like the ambient instrumental stuff in a lot of cases um and mm. then they finished with wish and something else and like yeah thanks that's nine inch nails bye <laughs> you know and um it was a really surreal thing to see because some people were fucking furious that they didn't get yeah. what they want but some people were just in fucking floods of tears because the hardcore nine inch nails fans were seeing material that they never thought they'd ever get to see and you mm. know i remember having to console a few massive nine inch nails fans you know it was bizarre but yeah anyway bit of a um uh bit off the topic but that but that whole idea of kind of wanting to be a different band every tour i think you too you can you know maybe give that to them again Mm. definitely absolutely and i think you know it's hard do i like it all no i'm not sure i like it all (laughs) but uh, do i respect it you know you got like you might not like it but you gotta respect it they did the thing that needed to be done and you know and i i fully kind of appreciate that um so the aftermath of that uh i mean i made the comparison with load and reload at the start and it seems uh, that seems quite apt um as the band so chuffed with the new direction that they were in they decided to continue to record and make an ep that ep became the album zuropa which was released on the 5th of july 1993 so only kind of 19 months or so after acton baby came out mm. now brian eno has said that he feels zuropa is actually a better version of acton baby um I maybe if you got me on the right day, I might agree with that. It certainly pushes everything further forward, and it doesn't, for the most part, sound like you two at all, at all. I mean, I think you can still hear a nugget, like you said, like Acton Baby still does sound like you two. You can still hear that band. They're swamped by all these other things. They're going in a completely different direction, but it does still sound like you two. They're a 
points in Zoropa where I could, I reckon I could play to someone who is familiar with U2's big hits. There are songs on Zoropa, four or five songs on Zoropa, that I reckon I could play to them and go, who is this band? And they would be 60, 70 guesses in and then just give up and they would not have even considered U2 at any point. Yes, which is I, fucking cool. Um, I I've not as I've not heard Zeropa in full, uh, so I can't um, I can't fully back it with the same knowledge. But certainly, I mean, the Lemon song comes to mind. Might be cheating. Well, numb, numb is numb is the main one for me. I think. Okay, okay. Uh, yeah. I can't recall numb. Uh, but but certainly, yeah. No, I, I mean, I know that there are definitely examples of that on Zeropa, undoubtedly. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You sort of described it as reload to load. Uh, obviously, you know, um, that was something that came later. Um, what, yeah. In what sense is that a comparison? Well, just that they came so quickly together. They're both born from the... that uh, They're both born from the same... Um, what, what what would you call it? The same... Uh, session they're inspired they're, they're they're sort of yeah they're from the same sessions but they're kind of inspired by the same general aesthetic yeah sure sure, sure. do you know what i mean um i mean you don't mean it from a quality perspective you're not saying that uh you're not saying that zoop uh Zeropa is um you know the no quality. i think Zeropa is far far better than reload put it that way yeah, yeah. far 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 better yeah. um i probably I, I mean i think overall Acting Baby is probably a better record, really. But there's so many weird... Th- I mean, if you think Zoo Station's weird, the title track that opens this out, the Zeropa, is fucking weird. And you've got shit like The Wanderer, by, which is just a song, a kind of an electro song sung by Johnny Cash. You know, it's like... Really? Bono's, oh, wow. like, he, Bono's, Bono's barely on it. He just sort of goes... He just does a bit of, like, woohoo in the background. And it's all, like, sort of really warm sort of paul oakenfold-esque electro stuff but with johnny cash singing it it's mad wow okay this is an album so, i must check out uh it's really good it's really i think it's really good um so you push it all and i think it's great you get that little period and then we get a kind of four-year gap uh, where the band did Hold Me Through Me, Kiss Me, Kill Me. They contributed to the Brian Eno Project Passengers, which is a sort of project for Sarajevo, um, where Bono did uh, the song Miss Sarajevo with uh, Luciano Pavarotti. Um, and then we get Pop in 1997. Now, the band have called Pop the most expensive demo ever made. It was rushed released to get out in time for the Pop Mart tour, which had already been booked before the album's completion. So they went, we booked booked the tour. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And both the record and the tour feel like you two really had lost the plot by then. I think it's essentially like that's where me and a lot of other people checked out. I mean, Pop didn't use Eno or Lamoir. It did use Mm. the very excellent Howie B, who's done some really good records. But for me, it was just far too down the rabbit hole. And those songs, a lot of them just don't work. And that kind of... I think that's the point where it felt like the I they'd forgotten that these ironic characters that they created were ironic. Mm-hmm. They so, instead became kind of caricatures of the caricatures they'd created. Yeah, it's it's a very long time since I've heard Pop, I have to say. Very, very long time. But um uh it's got its moments. 
But uh, yeah, not a great record overall, really. I mean, I think there was a massive that became like the really big backlash. And I think if you watch, I mean, I said I watched the Pop Mart tour mm. um, from uh, South Africa, from yeah, from Johannesburg. Mm-hmm. Um, they are they are really loose. Um, yeah. it's a it's a flabby flabby show right um the pop material sounds bad the stage set's not really that interesting do you they know, play you look at zoo tv and go that's really weird and interesting it looks amazing the pop zoo tv mm. looks even now the stage set looks amazing yeah i i don't think pop looks the pop mart thing looks that amazing okay. and i think it was you know it, it's that kind of andy warhol Thing that they were trying to do and yeah it, it just it's not as it's just not as good mm. it's just a not as good version in every sense a not as good version and i think because of that you then get um all that you can't leave behind in 2000 which is an album that kind of brought them back to that production team of eno and lanoir that really for me marked the end of u2 as a genuinely creative force as a band i think that album has got some really big mainstream rock songs on it i mean it's a beautiful you know day. Be- beautiful day elevation and then obviously stuff like vertigo and city blinding lights on how to dismantle an atomic bomb a few years after that but there's this point where i think you two got kind of burnt out by trying to do what they were doing on, on pop probably not so much on zero act and baby which they did very very successfully i think they look they probably look back at pop and go that's kind of embarrassing so we are going to go back to being that kind of earnest slightly more po-faced um and that's where i think they kind of do sort of become that thing they mm. don't really stretch themselves musically now mm. they don't really um make the same kind of wild creative jumps that they did back then um and they almost seem a little bit, for a long time, they seemed like this kind of middling stadium rock songs for, you know, middle-aged, middle-class white people. And they almost seemed kind of apologetic of that period. There's a quote from Bono where he says, around the time of All That You Can't Leave Behind, where he says, we've come to reapply for the job of best band in the world again. And <laughs> it's like, well, you ain't going to get it with that, mate. No, no. I, I, I don't mind all that you can't leave behind but it's a pretty stand yeah a pretty standard commercial stadium rock record isn't it i mean yeah it's got its moments it's better than pop but you know yeah it's all right i thought i actually thought how to dismantle an atomic bomb was probably an improvement actually overall yeah uh, as a whole I mean, post that. Well, I, that won Best Album at the Grammys as well, didn't it? Surprise it did. Surprise. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, 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 it did. Um, I mean, post that, I can't really comment, to be honest, because I, I don't, I can't recall a single song I've heard past How to Dismantle an Atomic Bomb. So, mm. but I don't, yeah, me really neither, really. Want, don't really want to listen to anything past, post that either. But, you know, that's, you know, all the things that you think about when you think about why you hate you 2 I think they kind of are born from that period. And, and they did... Mm-hmm. 
it's weird to say they became kind of shrinking violets, but I think they definitely like they've started leaning back on their past a lot more. They did the Joshua totally. Tree in full a few years ago. Yeah. Um, we actually watched like... we actually watched a little bit of that after watching Zoo TV, um, mm. and it felt so flat. It mm. felt so flat. I'm saying that they were very good when I saw them a couple of years ago at the O2. They were, it was a really good show, but they they did more show. stuff. They did more stuff then from acting baby mm, mm. i think like that stuff just i think it feels it's got more life in it and obviously those big songs like vertigo and stuff they do they they are designed this is why these back these boring bands like coldplay and the killers and the kings of leon are copying them because they look at stuff like that and they go well that's what works and they don't yeah. consider how, where the joshua tree came from or where acton baby came from or or even where like the unforgettable fire or war came from they don't consider that at all they look at u2's kind of post-millennial success mm. And that's what they see. Or they hear one or they hear with or without you and they go, oh, that's what everyone likes now. So yeah, we'll just do that. And I just think, you know, uh, you know, that it, well, it's, that's what it's become. Um, very, very briefly on the 31st of October, um, 2011, uh, the album was released for or re-released for its 20th anniversary. There's a box set, which is mad expensive, really thorough and massive and rare and neither of us own it um and it's really expensive and if you want to buy me that then i would love to have that um <laughs> it's about 600 <laughs> quid isn't it it's a lot of fucking money yeah. so basically the reissue of the band's like one album will come in a variety of formats this is a, a press release i found for it so uh, including an ex an extras laden uber deluxe edition which would include six CDs, four DVDs, five seven-inch singles, 16 art prints, an 84-page hardback book, Propaganda Fan Club magazine, four badges, a sticker sheet, and last but no means least, a replica of Bono's The Fly Sunglasses. Uh, this version will be released in a numbered box, which takes the form of a magnetic puzzle. Um, That's cool. It's cool, yeah. Uh, it's fucking expensive, but it's it's pretty cool. Um also, you wanted to mention, they did a few covers. Satellite of Love by Lou Reed, Fortunate Son by Credence Clearwater Revival, and Painted Black by the Rolling Stones, mm. um, each with uh, differing results. I think the Fortunate Son cover, which is a fucking great song, mm. as Clutch and Dave Grohl have proved over the last few years, it's a good mm. song to cover. Mm. Uh, it's not good. The U2 cover is is not good, I don't think. I don't mind it. It's not my favourite of those three by a long way, but I don't mind it. Mm. I quite like Satellite of Love, but you're right and you what you believe, which is Painted Black cover is really fucking good, right? It's fucking great, isn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, I, I sort of just said this to you, assuming you knew it, and you were like, oh, I've not actually heard that. And I was like, dude, it's basically like U2 meets the doors covering mm. Rolling Stones. It's fucking great. It's, um, I prefer it to the original. It's. I mean, I, I'm not a massive fan of Paint It Black, to be totally honest. No, the, the song, me neither. Um, it's really repetitive and dull. Um, and even though it's only sort of three, four minutes long, uh, it does outstay its welcome. This U2 version is as long as the original, if not a tiny bit longer, actually. But because you've got mm -hmm. that kind of Hammond organ thing going on as well, it just keeps my interest far, 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 far longer. Um, yeah, I love this version. I think it's really good. Yeah, it's fucking great. It's really, yeah. really good. Um, speaking of covers, we should mention the various covers uh, of people that have covered songs from this record. Um, Zoo Station by Nine Inch Nails. Fucking brilliant. Slower, more dreamy. More moody. Um, more moody. Maybe more Depeche Moody. 
more Depeche Modi. And really, no offence, Trent, but not as good. <laughs> I I mean, I I fucking love it. Not as good. Uh, they're very. It's really different. It's really different. Mm. I re I like it very very much. Um, I do. Don't know. Uh, do you know what I think? It, uh, it, depending on what mood I'm in, I think there's definitely moods that I could be in where I'd say no. I'd much p- prefer to listen to the Nine Inch Nails version at the moment. Thank you very much. Um, but but yeah, yeah, maybe overall, I think it's not quite as good. But it is. It's just very different, which you would expect. It's very different from Nine Inch Nails. Um, really good though. Well worth checking out. Yeah. One has been covered by Johnny Cash, Joe Cocker, Mary J. Blige, Professional Murder Music featuring Amy Echo, uh, Damien Rice and Chris Cornell. I think the Damien Rice version is really good. Um, yeah, I, for- I forgot to listen to that. Mate. I really want yeah, to listen Damien to that because I fucking love Damien very Rice. Very <laughs> great. Very, very lo-fi. Johnny Cash's version is pretty excellent. much exactly what yeah. you expect. Yeah, yeah, very yeah. excellent. And Chris Cornell's version is the lyrics to one by Metallica to the music of one by you two yes i saw him perform that live at the royal albert hall um mm. which was also the day that i interviewed chris cornell um mm. uh it's brilliant <laughs> yeah it's really good it's, 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 it's really yeah he 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 just he i mean that royal albert hall show i would go as far as to say it's one of the best shows i've ever been to in my life Better than any Soundgarden show I've seen. Um, Oh, fuck yeah. It felt like Chris Cornell in your living room, except your living room is the Royal Albert Hall, but it was fucking brilliant. Mm. But just his manner with the crowd, he was just very, very chatty. He did something like 30 odd songs in two and a half hours, but but also talking loads in between the songs and explaining um, where they came from, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. Ah, uh, and 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 yeah, that version of one. Um, he just explained how it came about and just how he was fucking around with. So he googled one lyrics, didn't he? Yeah, 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 yeah. And Metallica's one lyrics came up first. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. and you're like, that's never gonna work. That's absurd. And he kind of admitted it. You know, he was like, I mean, why on earth would that work? How on earth is that? And he was like, but yeah, I just sort of tried it, and this is what I came up with. And then he sings the most amazing conglomerate of these two incredible songs. And it's like, wow, this is as good as the two originals, but they're just completely yeah, different. I mean, it's Chris Cornell. What fucking, fucking legend. Chris Cornell. Yeah, we'll fucking talk one Chris day Cornell. when we, when we do, Soundgarden. when we do it, we'll talk about now. I was going to say, well, his cover of a day in the life by the Beatles, oh, just him yeah. on an acoustic guitar. It's he fucking did, he unbelievable. did that Royal Albert Hall as well. That was a good show, man. Oh yeah. Good show. Um, Who's going to ride your ride horse? Who's going to ride your wild horses? Was covered by Garbage, which is really great. Yeah, like that um, version. That's very good. Shirley Manson sounds just, brilliant on that. Mm-hmm. Um, Until the end of the world, covered by Patty Smith, just acoustic, stripped down, very loungy, really ace. I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, a slower, again, a more sl- a slower, more brooding, and darker, and a more sort of a darker version than the original is Depeche Mode doing So Cruel. Who mm. do definitely take the kind of Nine Inch Nails route on that. Um, the Fly was covered by a guy called Gavin Friday, who re- was the guy who, as I said, remixed Hold Me Through and Kiss Me, Kill Me. I don't yeah. really know much about him, but the cover's really interesting. It's quite acoustic sounding, and it kind of lacks the dancey nature of the original, but there's also loads of weird sort of acoustic, um, 
industrial blips and blops and sort of broken beats and apex twin isms within it and it's it's quite an interesting cover um right. mysterious ways has been covered by kmfdm um which is well ramstein uh right. and snow patrol who turned it into a slow boring acoustic song fucking idiots um <laughs> ultraviolet it's covered by the killers which is sort of the first half it's all right and then it gets quite boring um and Love is Blindness, for me, this is the single best cover of a U2 song anyone has ever done. In fact, I would go, it's the only one that I might concede is better than the original. Jack White doing Love is Blindness. Uh, it's fucking incredible. It's fucking outstanding. Uh, you played it to me just before we started recording these two sh- podcasts. And because um, I was I was trying to make the argument to you that the Nine Inch Nails cover is the best one that I heard and then I was like and you said you listen to the Jack White one I was like oh yeah I forgot and then I listened to it and about halfway through I was like yeah this is better than the Nine Inch Nails cover um totally different um but just god it's amazing it's I mean I think I actually think it's definitely better than the original like mm. it, I think it's incredible it it is really great. And I got a shout out my girlfriend because she heard it on the um, soundtrack to The Great Gatsby. And she was like, because oh. we had, I had the album on. And she was like, is this, is, who's this? This is, and I was like, I was you too. And she was like, are they cover Jack White? And I was like, no. <laughs> and I didn't know anything about it. Yeah. She had she to went, leave oh, the, the Jack house White version is amazing. Yeah. Um, and she's like, oh, the Jack White version is amazing. And it really is. But a lot of them come from um, a covers album called Actung baby covered which is kind of phonetically spelt um which is a sort of uh well it's a a cover album that's what it is um (laughs) uh, which came out on the 15th of november in 2011 um and was you know kind of made uh, available via a digital download on the itunes store all proceeds of the digital sales went to concern worldwide which are an ireland-based non-profit organization that provides aid to the world's poorest countries um the ceo of that organization tom arnold said um offering the proceeds from Acton Baby Covered to Concerns East Africa Appeal also provides a timely reminder that alleviation of the hunger and wider health crisis in the region must not be forgotten and must remain a global priority. Um, Arnold also said he was delighted but taken aback when he was contacted by Bono to ask if his organisation would accept all proceeds from the sales of the record. So that is a tribute album featuring Nine Inch Nails, Damien Rice, Patti Smith, Garbage, Depeche Mode, Snow Patrol, The Fray, The Killers, Glass Vegas and Jack White um, and all the proceeds. And it actually um, got in, went, went to number 53 on the US Billboard Top 200. So that probably made quite a bit of money for concern worldwide to go mm. to that cause. Um, all at Bono's suggestion. What an absolutely arrogant asshole that man is. <laughs> um obviously a mixed bag by the sounds of it and i haven't heard all of them but actually for the good one i think for nine inch nails and jack white alone that is worth investigating um Mm -hmm. i'm sure i'm sure there's some utter shit on it but um for those two tracks snow patrol's not great yeah 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 yeah. but um Mm. you know for that 10 minutes worth of music you said the damien rice one is brilliant and i'm sure it is because damien rice is fantastic uh yeah um it's really so interesting seeing the breadth of artists who have covered you two the fact that most of them most of them 
don't do straight covers. Most of them will change it at least a little bit. Um, mm. And I think that's really interesting. It's really interesting to see how malleable those songs are. And I think that's actually quite a good sign of a great band, isn't it? Or great songs. Absolutely certainly. it is. Absolutely. So we now have to sum all of this up, Renfrey. So <sighs> acting baby. Um in fact, actually, you two and everything we've spoken about, obviously I will talk about Acton Baby a bit as well, but um, I'm going to address you like I did at the very, very start of the start of this entire podcast when we started talking about the Joshua Tree. Mr. You Two Hater, just for a second, just think to yourself, why exactly do you hate you two? I mean, I feel like we live in a world where we're predisposed at this point to just leave the womb hating Bono, which is something you said on the phone to me a couple of days ago. And I can see why the grandeur and the uh, the less than stellar musical outlook and output of the last 20 years might put you off the band. But like I said, I had a dude whose favourite band was the Foo Fighters tweet me, telling me that you 2 were boring. And again, I've got no beef with the Foo Fighters, but the idea that they are as experimental, as interesting a band as you 2 and you 2 are boring is insane i mean all these things i've mentioned about bono we haven't really you know mentioned at the moment people are saying let's cancel this musician why don't more musicians use their platform i mean who would you rather have as an icon or a leader bono with his sometimes over the top opinion of his own importance or an actual rapist or paedophile like so many of those warp tour bands that you like are now you want someone to use their platform they do you want a band to evolve and to remain relevant they do more importantly like their music appeals to a, a lot of people i mean a really 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 lot of people do you want a band a big big rock band this is the fucking mothership and i think that from my own personal opinion, I think people forget. I think people kind of forget why they listen to and why they like music and why they fell in love with music in the first place. And they try and pass things off as guilty pleasures or something that they listened to as a kid. And they never go and connect with that person again. And that's a shit thing to do. And you shouldn't do that. You shouldn't shame yourself or belittle yourself for something that you used to be passionate about. And that's not a dig at anyone. If it's a dig at anyone, it's probably a dig at me because I forgot that in that kind of 15, 16 year period of listening to extreme metal and hardcore and sneering at you 2 It took one listen to Bad from the Paris Live album to remind me that fucking hell, I used to really, really like this band, like love them. And they're my favourite band pretty much. And that happened when I wasn't doing a podcast, when I just stopped doing a podcast and I didn't have much time. And I thought, fuck it. And it came up on my Spotify. Oh, you two live impact. I should listen to bad. And I was like, oh my God, I love them. This is brilliant. I stand by it. Now, as a 40 year old man, 13 year old me was right. I got it right. <laughs> All those years ago, the times I got it wrong was when I was being a knobhead and trying to look cool. And I didn't do that when I was 13. I just liked what sounded fucking vital and interesting to me. And these are two records that exhibit everything that we as a podcast have tried to champion. Growth, ambition, innovation, listening to what the world is saying, what people are telling you. Not even just the music scene, but the actual world and the environment around it. Trying to actually connect with people through your art. Otherwise, why are you making 
art if it's just for you like it should be a reflection of you but surely you want it to be for everyone as well surely you want to go I want to connect with people and I know you know we say oh it's not for you a lot and that's definitely true of quite a lot of the stuff that we we cover on the show there is stuff that you know I think it's a more of a kind of defense mechanism from our part of the scene because there inevitably are going to be a lot of people that will not enjoy or appreciate some of the more challenging things that someone like you or I like Mm. but music really is meant to be for everyone it's meant to be available for everyone and it doesn't have to be stupid or trite or easy or worthless it can be about things it can channel the past it can take a punk band from ireland and make them appreciate the delta blues from a time that they knew nothing around about and that is the power of that music and it can be a grassroots movement of young people in a European town playing with synthesizers that can inspire the biggest band in the world to risk everything that they'd ever built up and be part of a general genuine cultural movement a genuine part of history and that's what those two out these two albums are to me and i mean we've barely mentioned boy or war or the unforgettable fire you two are incredible and the only argument you have about whether or not you two are incredible are your own snotty punk rock prejudices from decades ago what a fucking great band. The best band. Maybe the best band ever. Maybe. Maybe I was that right when I was 13. <laughs> I think, um, I mean, certainly um, I can get massively behind you in terms of uh, I don't think people even realise why they dislike Bono these days. I think people do just, I mean, yes, I'm going to say it again because I I coined it. I think people do just come out of the womb hating Bono these days. And it's like, have you ever stopped to think why you hate Bono? Um, There are some, yeah, the po-facedness, yada, yada, yada. But as you've brilliantly pointed out, what would you rather? Would you rather your frontman was trying to um shine a light on corners of the world which are being treated badly um shine a light on apartheid shine a light on the troubles ira stuff um shine a light on all sorts of causes which people should focus on and look at or do you want gary glitter um you know like which like or which, austin carlisle yeah yeah like or the which, bass player from the ghost inside yeah yeah like it's it's kind of like or phil anselmo yeah who do you want to put on that pedestal and and really morally there is only one correct answer out of those people and the correct answer is bono end of story you know it's it's as simple as that and um are oh, you two one of the best bands ever I, I mean, I do not like them as much as you do. I think they're an incredible band. I think they did some incredible stuff for maybe the first, yeah, 20 years of their career, more or less. Um, I think the downturn is so massive. I think I think if you're if you're considering a beer, a band's entire career, it kind of falls mm. down ever so slightly there. But certainly this period, it's quite difficult to argue with and 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 i mean acting baby as a as a follow-up to an incredibly successful record and they could have just taken the easy route and i mean they had they had shit tons of material left over 
from the Joshua Tree sessions. They totally could have done, we've mentioned it already, but a sort of load reload thing. They could have done a sort of Joshua Tree part two and just continue to work on that material, much of which was already, some of it was already completed. It was in various different forms of completion, but you know, they could have totally did that. And there was a little bit of that on Rattle and Hum, but actually a lot of those songs... I think they have seen release now on certain like 20th anniversary editions yeah. and stuff, but there's low, they, you said yourself, they wrote 30 songs, didn't they? For Joshua 30 Tree? 30 songs for the sessions. Yeah. Mm. I mean, obviously the sweetest thing with one of them and that's like, you go, well, yeah. I can see why that was left off. Yeah. 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 And, <laughs> and it's, it's not great, but you know, but <laughs> it didn't stop Metallica with reloads doing fucking better than well, you. Well, here's the other, the, the other Metallica thing as well, right? Is, um, you listener, you don't like Lulu. You don't like St. Anger, but I'm not asking you to throw away Master of Puppets or Ride the Lightning. So why is this any different? Yeah, you're right. I don't want to listen to um, How to Dismantle the Atomic Bomb for the most part. I don't want to listen to Songs of Innocence. No, I don't. But if you're telling me that I should be embarrassed by those albums and I shouldn't listen to War or October or, you know, think that the their show at Red Rocks is fucking incredible mm. just because they've done some, just because of discotheque. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, no one's, no one's going, I am the table over, overwrites how great a song Seek and Destroy is. Mm. No one does that. Um, And when they're good, they're, they're that good. Like, so, you know, We've been recording for a long time. <laughs> well, just, 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 just don't, um, just don't like, you know, just don't, just don't tell me that you know that this is a similar like situation. Either you two used to be great, and fuck it, let's celebrate them for when they were great, and they had a twenty-year period of being great, which makes them one of the best bands ever. Great, or don't tell me Metallica are one of the best bands ever. And I'm happy to go, yeah, Metallica. There's no asterisk with Metallica. No. Metallica are one of the best bands ever. And they've done a lot of fucking rubbish stuff. Nice. Loads of people have done a lot of fucking rubbish stuff. And they still get called the best band ever. Mm. No one's slagging off. Well, actually, quite a lot of people are slagging off Paul McCartney. But no one's denying Paul McCartney going, oh, you don't get to listen to the White Album anymore mm. because mm. the Frog Song, mm. right? Like No one's doing that. Mm -hmm. So let's not do it to you two anymore. Fair. Very fair. Anyway. There you go. We finish now. <laughs> there'll, be, there'll be some more grindcore coming your way and some weird instrumental post rock coming your way soon. Um, but I hope you've enjoyed listening to this. And for me, uh, it's been great. It's been hard work, Renfrey, because I watched a lot of stuff. I read a lot of stuff. And I, I want people to understand how hard I've worked on this. And I've tried to convince you that this band are a fucking one of the all-time greats and how many pages you know, of, how many pages of notes did you make 37 pages of notes 37 um, pages yeah 37 pages of notes in all and let me just say this right if this podcast if you've never listened to any of these records before and um and this has inspired you to go well yeah fuck it maybe i will chuck on the joshua tree or maybe i will chuck on acting baby or any of the other records we've talked about congratulations you're about to experience something rather wonderful i think a hundred percent so yeah, yeah, yeah enjoy that anyway we're gonna go now um thanks very much for listening happy birthday to us 
This has hey. been our little present to you from us uh, on our birthday. It normally works the other way around, but how would we don't really know how that would work in a sort of sonic medium. So fuck it. There you go. You get a present. Well done. Uh, we'll see you soon. See you later. <laughs> Bye. Bye.